We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast with your hosts, Alan Williams and James Peter This place is an insane asylum in the swamp! Oh my! Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. Welcome back, everyone, to the Gator Nation Football Podcast. My name is Alan Williams. Of course, I'm here with the man himself, James Virgilio. Thanks for being patient with us as we navigated a few illnesses and hiccups. Really glad to be back with you guys. James, good to be back with you as well. Uh, it's great to be here. It's been almost three months. Wow. Alan had told me this a couple of weeks ago. I was like, no, no, we did a podcast in March, didn't we? He's like, no, we didn't. I said, oh, you're right. And obviously with the spring being a non-existent spring for Florida, which we will talk about. We didn't do the customary before and after spring episodes, so we have a lot to talk about on this show. Alan and I are so excited to to catch sort of you up on our thoughts, and, and obviously we've been hearing from you guys. We love hearing from you. There's nothing more encouraging than in the football offseason to have all of you writing to us saying, hey, we miss you, because we miss, we miss you guys too, and we love that you missed the show. As always, if you like the content, follow us on social media, sub to our YouTube channel where you can catch our film breakdowns and become a patron on Patreon where you too can drop us a dono. Despite the fact that we haven't been recording an episode, we actually have some new patrons, which Let's is go. awesome. We've got an upgrade uh, from small dono to in between small and medium dono, total custom level here. We have Jason Thies, and then we have Mike Marino. Mike Marino. What a last name. I'm a huge Dolphins fan. I grew up as a massive Dan Marino fan. I have no idea if there's any relation there, but it doesn't matter. It's still a great last name coming in hot with a medium dono and still sitting on the throne who has been on the throne most of the time. If you're new to the podcast, the person on the throne is the person that has supported or is currently supporting us the most through donos on Patreon. So it can change at any given time. It's sort of like an old school blind bidding eBay setup. And that man is one Alexander Leventhal. We also have some Dono Legends, Alan. If you happen to, at any point in time, whether it's one time or over the course of many moons, reach $300 in total support, you become a Dono Legend. And thanks to all of our Dono givers, all of our patrons for supporting us. Uh, It's immensely important to us. We really appreciate it. Uh, So thank you, Alan, as always, we'll read off this uh, distinguished list. Yes, indeed. Let's start with Diego Rivera, Bill Hood, James Newton, Nathan Jeter, Stash Me, Bobby Boucher, 
Frank Marcellisi, Mike Wechter, Tim Kane, Nicholas Isaac, Mike, Mark Jackson, Tim Hondrick, James Truett, Gus O'Leary, Brad Wilson, Mark Mitchell, Chris Folsom, Dr. Matthew Galloway, Aaron Jeter, Jason Landry, Michael Reeves, Jason Johnson, Zach Sparks, Cooper and Kylie Craig, and Mark Rubenstein. Thank you to each and every one of you. You guys are awesome. All the legends. There we go. Okay, James, let's talk about the Gator Spring. So kind of a typical spring practice schedule. They moved it up a little bit, but the atypical thing was they did not host a spring game due to mostly the stadium being used for COVID vaccinations. So instead, it was a promised spring special that was going to air on SEC Network. They didn't say much about it. All of a sudden, they said, hey, it's happening way later than we thought it would. That Thus, the delay in this podcast, essentially. It aired. It happened. It was a thing that was on the SEC Network. James, give me your thoughts on it, though. Well, as a fan of Hard Knocks, you and I watched this <laughs> together. And of course, it was on the SEC Network. You knew it was going to be some sort of fluff piece. But I think we had hopes that there'd be something maybe more insightful, perhaps more than a absolute advertising piece for Florida football. Fluffy and puffy it was. In a way that I can't imagine would actually work to get recruits to want to come to your school. So I want to talk more about the special in a second. But if you hadn't caught it, I don't think you're really missing anything. Uh, if you loved it, I'm sorry that I disagreed with you. It was just a, a fluff piece. Well, maybe just what, if you want it, that's what you wanted. Sure. If they delivered it, maybe. Yeah, it's not offensive in any way. It's just a thing. But I do have I do have a question, Alan, okay. about the spring special. And what I mean is most other schools across the SEC held spring games. Most other schools maintained a level of openness around the program where reporters, beat writers, etc. could at least catch a few practices. It seems rather convenient to me that Florida completely shut out everyone this spring. Does it seem rather convenient to you, or am I just searching for a potential narrative here that maybe isn't there? No, that's important to talk about. That was the other side of this, is why there's so little information. Not only was there not a spring game, there was, yeah, as you said, the practices were close to the media, which normally most of them are, at least percentages, portions of each practice. So you get people commenting on who's doing well, who's not doing well. None of that. So then why? So is there good surprises or bad surprises? So you can be like, hey, we're going to do something totally different in the fall, and we don't want anybody looking in on it. I would understand that, even though I would say that's maybe you're just believing your own hype a little bit. Or there's bad things, and you don't want people to see the bad things and create a bad narrative. Which, of course, is where I am. (laughs) (laughs) Because, you know, I'm a big fan of game theory and strategy and tactics, and it's hard for me to believe that you would have closed basically everything unless you were trying to protect something or someone. Hmm. And we'll talk more about that from what we saw on the special and what may be happening in the future. But I think it's worth noting that that decision I do not think was made entirely due to COVID. I think there were some team management scenarios there, lots of turnover, (laughs) lots of stuff going on. Time will tell, obviously. Let's go and talk about it. Who do you think that they are protecting? There's two candidates in my mind. Uh, there are two main candidates, right? One, uh, Todd Grantham or maybe and, Emory and Jones. We, we know from the special they were not protecting Grantham. 
because Grantham got maybe the only actual real football-oriented spot, and it was actually quite lengthy twice in this special. So they actually have him kind of breaking down some film. They have him talking about defensive style. Uh, he's not really saying anything that's that's too intricate or even even film really worthy if you've watched a typical film breakdown, but they did it. And that, to me, felt very much on purpose. The show, yeah. oh, look, here's Grantham. Look, he's in the film room. Look, he's teaching. Uh, and they tried to put him, I think, in, in the best light they could. And secondly, I think more importantly, although they're probably not protecting Grantham from the media or anything else, I think they were protecting Emery. Uh, I think for many reasons, which we've chronicled on this very podcast, Emery, I don't think is going to be, especially right now or maybe ever, a very accomplished passing quarterback. And if you are transitioning from one of the best Florida's ever had to potentially a very limited passer, and on top of that, and here's the real trick, I think, Alan, you have a freshman, Anthony Richardson, who I had mentioned at the end of the Oklahoma game having a particularly spectacular touchdown pass that already looked more accomplished than anything Emory has done, potentially creating some controversy. So effectively, Alan, if you Google right now, you're not going to find any articles that suggest that Richardson versus Emory is a quarterback battle that we could witness from the spring. Or that Emily is struggling and there's bad vibes. None of those narratives. Now, certainly message boards will suggest it. You've heard in this podcast, I will suggest it. But I don't have any ammunition to say, hey, look, let's break down some spring film, which I could have had, I would have had, to look and start to look at, hey, this is what's going on. Here's the processing speed. Here's the field reads. We don't have any of that. So to me, that's the smoking gun. And is that a good thing or bad thing? Well, that depends on on what you expect out of this football team next year. But I do think that's why this was done behind, um, you know, a, a shroud of secrecy, so to speak, is to protect Emery, who has been a faithful and good teammate, who has stuck with the plan in an era where everyone leaves. I have no problem with a, a quarterback and a coach trying to work together to reward a guy who's been loyal to the program. But at the end of the day, competitive sports is going to shine a light on your skill set at some point. And you really in my opinion, just cannot protect a guy from those things. They're going to happen. That's what competition does. So there's lots of things to look for. But in my opinion, Alan, there was nothing I saw in the spring special, which was even a fluff piece that was confidence building for Emery. And there was one moment that was, I'm not going to say it's cringeworthy, but you know, not maybe what you want to see if you're coming into it thinking maybe Emery's not going to be a great passer. Well, yeah, let me, before I get to that, let me just say, I think this is most the most likely explanation. Maybe there's a less nefarious or, you know, I don't know, conspiracy theory kind of a thing going on here. Maybe it was just like, yeah, the the UA said, no, you can't. UAA said, no, you can't film it. There's too many media in here or whatever. I don't know. That doesn't seem like the most likely thing to me. So if you do think that Emory can improve and you want to take the pressure off and not have the media scrutiny in spring, which it doesn't matter, you're not playing any games, it's not a crazy decision. It's not something I would agree with. Now, if you think ultimately he's going to get beaten out, just let it start happening now. You you get ahead of it, and when it happens, people aren't going what. So if you're Dan Mullen, you but you think Emory's going to get there, this would be a move to try to protect him and shield him, which that wouldn't be my move, but I understand it and it's defensible. There's a moment; it's very small, and if you. I don't, we could have even missed it, but uh, Dan Mullen makes a small correction 
or just a quick aside to Emery where he gives him um, a comment on his throwing motion about how he's throwing his leverage over his front foot, I believe is what it was. Maybe you can remind me. But it's the type of comment that you would normally say to like a freshman where you're rebuilding his mechanics. You're saying, hey, remember to do this, right? You're getting, like if he had said that to Kidna or Del Rio, even like great comment from Dan, very appropriate. To Emory, who's been in the system for a long time, that that's the type of thing you're still correcting him on is worrisome. It's not, hey, you know, on this read, this guy's doing this. Remember, you have this on the backside or whatever. The next level stuff that you think you'd be coaching him on, if you're still coaching him on the fundamentals, and spring is a time to work on fundamentals. It's not the worst thing. And this could be just, that's the only time he did that and Dan wants to remind him. But they got very few clips and that's the one, immediately both of those went, uh-oh. So that was our reaction. Could be totally overblown. But if that's the kind of trajectory he's on as a guy who's been here for a while, it's going to cause problems for him in the season. And it's curious, right? Because we're kind of building a thought process here that this was a rather curated special. Right. And if if I'm Coach Mullen and I'm curating a special, the last thing I am doing is putting myself talking to Emery about accuracy and a very rudimentary throwing motion mechanic. And again, look, this happens even in the NFL. You know, sometimes quarterback coaches will have to work with their guy and say, listen, you're kind of leaning in here. That's okay. But it was very weird that the only actual moment we really saw on the field between Emery and Coach Mullen was that, which I would have rather included something about talking about what you just mentioned. Hey, look, that was great. You know, you recognize that was cover two. You looked off the safety. You threw that ball there on the smash route. Great ball. That seemed, that would elevate your quarterback to a level where your fans are watching, thinking, oh, this is great. You know, they're really deep in the quarterback guru uh, sort of relationship. So it's a mountain out of a molehill right now. I think, obviously, for me and all of you know this in the podcast, and I'm going to wait until I see film. People can improve and they can change. So we always look at the film. That's what we do here. But right now, if I had to handicap it from what I've seen, from what I've observed on Emory, what I've put on the YouTube channel, what we've talked about here, I would already handicap this as something where Richardson is probably ahead of Emory Jones as a quarterback. And that's not a knock on Emory. Quarterback is a very nuanced, very difficult position. Sometimes you either see it and feel it and get it, and sometimes you don't. And so I think Florida is going to build a totally different offense around Emory, of course, one that I personally don't love. doesn't mean we can't win with it. But I want to go to your point, which I think was the most prescient, Alan, when you had mentioned, if you think there's going to be a quarterback competition, that's going to be close. You are best off letting it happen sooner rather than later. And that's the part I want to focus in on. There's been a lot of discussion, obviously, of how Dan Mullen has handled things on this very podcast and elsewhere. And this one, if that is true, if Richardson does start to push Emory during the season, will be, I just think, another small thing we can point to and say that strategically, tactically, that's not the right move if you actually expect there to be competition because that, Allen is anti-competitive and that is favoring um, seniority over meritocracy, which on a football team can be poison. You need your whole team to know that we will play the best guy no matter what. And what experience gets you is a leg up probability-wise that you'll beat out the younger guy. That's what that gets you. It does not get you the right to start because you've been a good soldier So we're talking a lot about this because these are just deep narratives, but 
something to watch as we enter into the fall. And I thought your point was really good that if that is the case and coach does expect that, closing everything off is, I think, the opposite of what you'd actually want to do uh, heading into a fall battle. And speaking to somebody who has been at practice very briefly, no, I spoke to them briefly. They were at all the practices. Um, His prediction was that Richardson would take the job from him at some point next season. And... And let's pause for that. That's a that's a big. You just dropped like a massive nugget in the middle of this podcast. That there's a there's a source that was at every practice that thinks Richardson, at least based upon his talent. Again, coaches can over will actually be starting by the middle of the season. Yeah, and he didn't like you know put all his weight on it or like say this is the thing I believe in most. But that's at least an observation that that's a potential that they're fairly close right now. And I do think Emory has earned the right to start at the beginning of the year. You know, I think teams also do value loyalty. If you took the job away from him without letting him really have a chance to like show it, and they do see it in practice, the other guy has to be clearly better, right? If they're even, you'd want to start the the guy who's put the time into the program. But eventually, you're right. It, if it feels like this guy's being favored for the wrong reasons, then that's going to cause some conflict in your overall team structure and culture. But let's talk about the Emory and the offense just briefly. We're talking about our hesitancy about him. I do think that this offense can be very successful and productive. I think there's a cap on it. I think it's defend. It can be defended in ways that a more like multifaceted offense can't be. And you, let's say you get behind in a game the style that we're going to have to employ, we're going to be challenged to like clean up points. Let's say there's, you know, weird things happen, fumbles, kick returns, other things. Then you put yourself into a bind, whereas a different kind of offense would not push you on that. Now, again, there's, there's value for this, the offense that we're going to run most likely. So it's not, they can't be successful or productive or even efficient. As you said, stylistically, it's not necessarily what I watch and there's some limitations to it. Uh, so that's, I think where we're heading. So I, I don't want to come down all doom and gloom. This could be an offense that could put up a ton of points, a lot of yards, especially, um, if everything comes together with, you know, certain pieces and certain position groups. So not all doom and gloom, but yeah, just has some drawbacks. I think that both of us are uncomfortable with. Yeah. And I think the storyline for me heading into this year and then throughout this season is going to be this crossroads of of who is Dan Mullen? Is he 1.0 or is he 2.0? And I, I think that that Richardson represents far more of a 2.0 mindset because he is a pure thrower than Emery does. And you can win with a 1.0 to a certain degree. Like we've talked about when Mullen got hired, nobody has won, you know, in the past 10, 12 years with a 1.0 style Dan Mullen offense. It's not what wins anymore. Um, even a, a Nick Saban, a floor strategy guy, abandoned that kind of mindset, and he never ran the same style offense. But you get the idea. So this, to me, with Emory, is going to feel very much like the classic Dan Mullen 1.0, three and a half yards per play, run the ball sixty percent of the time, sixty five percent of the time, throw it only occasionally, steal big plays with your scheme. And something you said, Alan, last year that we talked a lot about on film study was that. So many of Dan Mullen's most creative and best plays are actually running plays. I was really impressed with what we did in the passing game last year, how we really grew that to be much better. But his bread and butter really still is his run design, 
which has been extremely limited for a lot of reasons. So like you said, it's not that we can't be successful on offense. If anything, this is more comfortable for Dan Mullen to be successful with. There's just questions about can you win anything with this kind of offense? I don't know. It's going to shape up to be very interesting, I think, as a fan for different reasons than last year was. Uh, so the drama, I think, is probably just beginning. And let, let's finish up talking about the special. I think my main problem with it, or maybe the missed opportunity was, I was hungry to see what spring practice was like for these guys. What did they go through? A, not a total hard knocks style. They were never going to get that, I think, intimate or incisive. But most of it was either talking about the coaches or just reviewing what had happened in the past. There was some NFL pro day stuff. There was, you know, of course, like a very big special on like the Mackey award. And we saw lots of how they recruit people. There's a lot of stuff in there. I was like, wow, I don't know why we're, this isn't about spring practice. I would have liked to have seen that. Even if they're not giving away secrets, even if you don't show much of Emory, Show me what you're doing. Show me what you're practicing. Show me what it's like to be in spring practice. I thought it was just a miss by them for a, a fan base that would have really appreciated, I think. And let's talk about that for a second. You know, you and I are not recruiting college athletes, but I think you and I operate a lot in realms that are very close to that. Obviously, your daily job, you are working with college students all the time. Yes. Uh, you know, me, I'm, I'm about to ramp up and start coaching this professional flag football team again. And I have to recruit athletes. We have guys coming in from across the country. We have a tryout. We have camps. You know, we have cuts. We have the same thing. We shape a roster. We play sports. We travel. Authenticity is what I think is the most important currency for relationships. And so for me to watch the section on the Otis Hawkins Center, which is a great place. I've spent a lot of time there mentoring and lecturing to athletes in my own right. But they actually just inserted a clip they show to the recruits into the middle of that uh, video, that special. But the thing about it that gets me is the whole spring special, you just said it, Alan, it lacks all of the hallmarks of the authenticity that people actually really crave. The reason why YouTube is so successful is you can look at your favorite athlete or persona and you can see them talking directly to you with what their day was like today. And that's very interesting and appealing because it's real. But instead, I think what we got was a highly scripted, sort of like a 90s advert, which just to me also partly feels a little out of touch with maybe what I'd want to be doing as a coaching staff. So interesting. I think there's interesting things to take away from these things. Yeah. You know, Nothing you rises control, and falls on this spring special. It doesn't but. matter. You could win football games and have the worst you know, media presence in the world. That's okay. But just things to note, like if we're trying to put an image out there and that's what we think is working, is that necessarily the best? And does that help explain why perhaps our recruiting is maybe not so great as we're not necessarily sure how to really strike the right chord? Uh, who knows? These are just thoughts off the cuff, right, about some content we're talking about. But all in all, I think it's safe to say that nothing really gained, nothing lost. Florida didn't look bad or foolish or, or silly. It was just a thing that occurred we saw some stuff. We saw some players talk here and there, you know, uh, and we got a lot of Grantham, which again, I think was maybe the prime takeaway was Grantham was mainly featured, I think, on that special. Let's now talk about the biggest thing in all of college sports, not just football, uh, but the transfer rule, the free agency that now exists. So in case you're not familiar with this, essentially every single college athlete will be able to transfer for free without having to sit out one time, which 
changes everything about the nature of college football. Now, if you're a really an astute follower of this, you've probably seen that most players were granted kind of the right to do this, but it would take the NCAA forever. They really weren't sure what was okay and not okay. And so now they said, okay, let's do this. So Alan, I want your thoughts. First of all, is this good for college football? I don't know. I think it's mostly good for the players. Um, I think it's always been a point of tension for me, like that a coaching staff can leave and they don't have to sit out a year. I don't think it's healthy for universities and the college football as a whole to have just mass exoduses left and right. I don't think that's necessarily going to happen. Again, there there's a lot of things they're going to have to work through in terms of scholarship limits, initial counters, all these kind of details where just because there's a lot of people leaving doesn't mean you can take them all. Um, so they're going to have to figure this out. And I think they're waiting because there's going to be a lot of unintended consequences. But generally, I feel okay about it. Every other NCAA sport other than, I think, like football, basketball, and I think like men's hockey had a one-time transfer rule. So everybody else exists with it. Now, again, those sports are different, especially, you know, basketball and football. They're the revenue drivers. I think it's okay. I'm not expecting an apocalypse, right? I think it's it's reflective of the culture a little bit, but I don't think I want to get in the way and say, no, you can't do this because I don't, there's lots of good reasons to transfer. And again, if your coach bails or the, University fires your coach. I don't know. Should you be able to leave? I think that's okay. Again, and what kind of culture are you building? Right? So I think it's going to be on you as a coach to continue to build a really quality culture that people aren't just bailing out at their first sign of difficulty. Yeah, I think there's so many thoughts here that run through my mind. And and I'll start with the much higher view, which is on the top of it, if you're looking at college sports, there's so many inherent problems with the student athlete I'm, I'm air quoting that model that are immediately alleviated by the professional model so for example why is this not a thing for european soccer because every single one of those players in those academies is under contract they willingly voluntarily sign a contract for x amount of years and they can't get out of that contract, and the club can't get out of the contract either, unless certain things in the contract allow for that to happen. So if you know, if PSG wants to take their player from Paris and they want to loan them to Liverpool, there's financial things that have to occur. The player does not have a say in that, but the player signed a contract agreeing not to have a say in that, right? So with student-athletes, you have this really bizarre setup where they sign a contract, which is not really a contract. Uh, coaches have an actual contract where if they left, there can be ramifications. Athletes don't really have that. They're getting a scholarship and they're here, but then on top of that, they are young and they're making these decisions to play for these schools and what if things don't go well and how do you get out of it? Again, that's where I think it's impossible. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get through that funnel to say it's impossible to create a, a really clean model this way unless you go the professional model, which is then clean. Then it's the athlete's own individual fault for choosing to choose PSG and not you know Chelsea or something because they had a choice and they signed the contract. They could have gone anywhere they wanted. Same thing with these college athletes, but it's a lot different because they don't have a, a contract. Once they get into school, they have a scholarship. 
So it's it's wonky. It's it's messy. It's unclear. It's one sided because the university can bind them, but exactly they can't bind. So the then they enter into a bad spot. So allowing free agency that helps. I'm a free market guy. That gives them some more freedom. I like that. But we're still working with a very contrived, convoluted marketplace, which is not clean. Anything but what a free market went up with. And there's something, Alan, that philosophically, and this is not to do with free agency, but has to do with the culture at large in general, that you said to me that I'm hoping you're going to repeat on air here on demand about about commitment. You had mentioned this like a month ago. Um, you know, without commitment, you had this great quote, right? Yeah. Low commitment never yields high satisfaction. And that's a really profound thing. Low commitment never yields high satisfaction. And what I think about with all of this is the best coaches, the best cultures are still going to get high commitment out of their players, which is going to lead to high satisfaction, which is going to lead to success. So if you're worried that this is going to prevent your school, your team, your Florida fan from winning, it's not because of what you just mentioned. But also as a culture and this is not based upon this transfer, but as a culture, that is a really concerning movement because so many of these players have that mindset. It's a low commitment mindset to everything and anything but themselves. And a commitment to yourself is not a commitment. It's not a commitment. So that's just a philosophical comment, but I'm with you on this. I think this is generally good for the athlete because of what we just walked through and talked about. And again, if you really think through the problem the only clean way to fix it is what the NCAA definitely doesn't want, which is more of the pure academy model, which again, to me, it really should be. So without that, you're going to get these kind of wonky scenarios. But anytime a coach wants to stand up and complain and whine and act like this is terrible and horrible, as you mentioned, they probably shouldn't, you know, because the players do get stuck in a weird place. It is a one-way deal once they're here. And, you know, allowing them one choice that they made when they were 17 to switch out and go somewhere else and pursue their career fine and if you keep doing this like let's say you could transfer always there's only be going to be a few guys who actually can do that successfully keep tra- because everybody else is going to go no i don't want that guy because he's clearly there's something wrong transfer once that's, yeah sure you know so i do think that's not going to create the kind of chaos that some people fear i think i would say the same thing about in in a lie or in a yeah, NLI name likeness and image. It's gonna create stuff, but I also don't think it's gonna be the breakdown of Western civilization that some people fear. I think people should be able to profit off their image. I think there's this artificial caps. I'm fine with scholarship offers as like quote unquote payment, even though we don't talk about that. There's a lot to that. Most of these guys would are not gonna be making money anyway, but the guys who can to artificially constrain them feels like it goes against a lot of the functions of our society. So I think that's a good, the Olympic model is a good medium point. Like the universities are never going to pay them as employees because it, it would, we would just cease to have collegiate sports. They're not going to undertake that. And that could be fine, but we have this weird American model. This is how we do it. We love it. There are some drawbacks to it. I think this would, this will help. It'll, they'll bring some drawbacks to it. But I think it will help alleviate a lot of the pressure. And the reality is, Almost all college athletes would be signing one-year contracts if this were a professional scenario. Right. And the best players would be getting the four-year contracts. We're giving everyone a four-year scholarship, which is like a four-year contract. And that's really where the problem relies. 
So a lot of players look at it as though they're being, you know, shafted with the four-year scholarship. And that's where I think rightfully so a lot of academically minded people say you are way undervaluing a guaranteed free ride if you just stay on the team for four years. That is true. Athletes totally are because a lot of them are delusional that they're going to be the next professional athlete. Where in a professional model, in front of them would not be four years of school. It would be a bunch of one-year contracts with various academies. And if they made it, they would be there. And if not, they're out and they're probably out of pro sports forever. And that's something that's missing, which I think is a proper feedback loop, by the way, because imagine that happens. Now you get player XYZ, spends a year at Florida. He doesn't pan out. He's the back on the market. There's no top school that finds him. Maybe he comes face to face with the fact that, hey, you know what? Maybe I'm not an NFL caliber player. Maybe I should go to school. And so feedback is really important, I think, in the marketplace. But at any rate, hopefully, you know, you found that discussion as interesting as I did. It's interesting time, something to keep an eye on. Um, and something I think that obviously will affect every program, something that should help Florida, in my opinion, Alan, because Dan Mullen is much better at pulling in players that have already been someplace, grown up a little bit, than he is at pulling the high school guy. And so this, in theory, if if we're grading this for how does this help Florida, this is probably a positive, I would think, for for Florida in the long run. Do you want to circle back around to the position group? I do. Okay, well, let's talk about before we leave the Gators specifically here. Um, Just from this point in the spring, I want to ask you, let's talk about what's the position group you feel best and worst about on offense and defense. Let's start with offense. The best about seems like an absolute layup. It it has to be the running back position. This is perhaps the most talented running back room we have ever had at Florida. It's absolutely stacked with talent. Loaded. Loaded. Um, incredible room of guys there. So that's phenomenal. The only problem is you have you can only play one, two at the most at a time, and you've got you know four or five quality guys there. The worst on offense, no surprise here, is is still going to be the offensive line, um, followed by quarterback. Only because this is a personal opinion. I just loathe the Dan Mullen 1.0 offense personally. And if you love it, that's fine. This is a matter of opinion. I don't like it. So I personally am like, "Mm, I don't want to watch us run the ball a million times, but it's obviously offensive line. We're still woefully under recruited and talented there. As you've mentioned, Alan, we still have misfit guys at different places. We don't have the right kind of guys at the right place. And as it stands right now, Delance is our starting right tackle, which is, is just a sub sec player. I think we'll be fine at the other position groups relative to our continuing sore spot of O-line. How about you? Yeah, I I think offensive line would be the obvious answer, but I think I am going to say quarterback. That's the one I feel worst about. And that, again, that's not to say that I don't think we can be productive at the position, but I have less hope that's going to get us to where we might need to be to be competitive against the best teams. So um, I think you're probably expecting, everyone probably expecting me to say offensive line. Again, it's it's the one that has the most like question marks to reach, probably like SEC level play. Uh, you know, Emory's an SEC level athlete, no doubt. He can play. But can you do the types of things that we need him to do? Um, so yeah, I don't feel great about receiver. I, I think we're going to be fine there. Uh, I'm still jury's definitely out for me, a slot for me on Copeland and shorter and some of these guys. I think there's a lot of young guys who could play well that I'm excited about Henderson, but 
if you're expecting Copeland to be your A1 guy, I think you might be in trouble. Um, doesn't mean that we'll be bad at that position, but I don't know that we're going to be able to reload like we've done the last two years. All right, what about defensively? Defensively is interesting for so many reasons because in theory on paper, we're plugging a lot of holes with this defense, which is good. Um, I want to say, and this is the most obvious answer ever, which is almost why I want to go to the second one, is that at corner, we should be in excellent shape with our projected two starting corners. I mean, Elam is going to be a first-round pick, slam dunk. And then you've got a variety of guys that are also, you know, assuming the most talented guy wins it, is going to be a first-round pick in his own right someday, potentially. But either way, that should be fantastic. Should be one of the best quarterback duos, I mean, cornerback duos in the SEC, and if not, all the country. That's one. Secondarily, the D-line, in theory, with the with what we've done to plug the holes, should actually also be pretty good, which is good. So you can start to get pretty excited about things. So I feel the best about, I'm going to say, the D-line in the corners for sure. And I feel the worst about, I want to say that I feel better about <laughs> the safety position potentially, but I don't. I don't. I just don't feel, it's been terrible for so long. I'm going to need to see it. So I still feel the worst about safety. And of course, I think a linebacker, we just haven't figured that out the whole time Grantham really has been here. We'll have one guy plug in and play. So I think the two the two spots that are, that in my opinion, have consistently hurt Florida are going to potentially rear their hair again. Although safety, I think, has got to be the biggest. We just don't have someone you can look at and say, that guy is going to be the guy. We have talent, we have young guys, et cetera, but that has not translated thus far. Yeah, earlier on in the spring, the, the most obvious answer would have been defensive tackle. Would have been just... Man, the number one red flag on the entire team. But seemingly, bring up those two guys, Shelton and Newkirk, that we should be fine there. There's enough depth there. Those guys feel like they fit right in and will do exactly what we want them to do. Linebacker, even though scheme-wise, I, I don't know, but it feels like there's enough talented guys there. Hopper, Wingo, Diabate, that we actually could be really good if we can figure out how to deploy them. It's got to be safety, though, is the one where you feel worst. Not because there's not potential solutions in Torrance and Dean. Like, Torrance, they actually just came out and said he was a starter in the spring special. Just kind of a throwaway line. Great that they feel good enough about him just to say that out loud. And Dean could be fine. You know, he played there last year. I mean, star is obviously a huge question mark for this. So if I... Maybe you include that with the safeties because it seems like the coaches do rather than the corners, which is backwards in our opinion. But yeah, the best, I would say the D-line overall. Like feels like we have depth and a variety of guys we could use in different spots. Jeremiah Moon coming back. I feel like D-line you have to feel best about. And, you know, some questions at corner feel pretty good there. And But by far safety is the one with the biggest questions and I would include star in that. Yeah. And I was going to say if we, and we, well, I was going to save this for the end. If we just included the nickel slash the star as its own position group, then obviously without a doubt, that is my number one. I feel the worst about that spot for a, a million reasons that have been listed on this podcast. If you're new to it, you can go back and catch pretty much anyone from last year. And you'll hear me talk about that nickel star spot or flip over to YouTube. And you'll see us talk about that as well. We just have not figured that out since we've had Chauncey, who was obviously amazing and an NFL level player. 
we need to do better at that. That spot is continually killing us, and it's one of the most important spots in modern football. There's a reason they call it the star. Exactly. And this, a lot of this too, Alan, I feel like on defense, to be fair to myself, um, I'd probably feel better if I didn't have Grantham, not probably, definitely, if I didn't have Grantham <laughs> coaching. To, I just don't trust that these spots that have been bad are going to get better. At some point in time, it's not the players rotating through. It's the coach and how people are being taught to play. And it's hard to have confidence when you have not had reason to to be confident based upon what you've watched. So here's a good way to say this. I think for you, and to lesser extent me, let's say you sub out Grantham for your optimal defensive coordinator, whoever that might be, with this collection of talent, could be a really stellar defense. There's enough talent there and bodies at every position that you could be really, really good. That's well said, and that's kind of what, yeah. what shot us in the foot last year is on paper we thought this should be an upgrade from our previous defense, which it should have been. It was not, and now here we are again in the same spot. So that that's well said. Everything has to be measured with. We're trying to observe what we think is really going to happen based upon the staff we're looking at, not what could happen based upon the talent of the players. And that's an important caveat we do on this podcast. It's very easy to look at your roster and say, if all these guys play ceiling level, we are so good. You know, Alan and I are trying to look and say, based upon the coaching, the development, the history, what's likely going to be our problem spots and our good spots and et cetera. And that's a good discussion. So that bleeds perfectly into recruiting, Alan. Just a quick hitter here, of course. Uh, if you've been a fan of the show for a long time, you know that we really recover, cover, we cover, hello, recruiting at a broad scope level. We use tiers to look at them, kind of to say, do we have enough talent to compete with the other top schools? Right now, Florida's off to a quite unimpressive start for next year's recruiting class. It's way too early to Especially get excited. COVID, who knows? It's too early to get excited. But the bottom line is, we've said it once, we'll say it again. I think it's safe to expect that Dan Mullen is going to recruit where he recruits, which for us is a tier two and a half area, which in my opinion is not good enough to win a national title. And it's somewhere between seven and 13, if you like to look at rankings that way. And that's probably where we're going to finish. So if you're worried right now that we're in the low 20s and We've signed, you know, two guys that are below a three-star or questionable, whatever. Um, don't worry about it. There's a lot of time left, and I'm sure he'll finish right in that same level. It would be wonderful, important, necessary, I would say, for Florida to recruit higher than that. But at this stage, with this much data, it would be foolish to believe that Florida's going to all of a sudden pop into those top three or four spots in the recruiting rankings, which I think is going to be something that ultimately is going to continue to prohibit Florida from reaching the top. So recruiting, vitally important in my mind. But right now, the early report is we are not off to a guns blazing start just yet. So we'll keep an eye on it. Yeah, I'm the patient one. I want to see what we do, especially with weird factors. doesn't mean I'm more confident. I think the best teams will overcome the weird factors. But I think this year, everyone's in kind of wait and see. The evaluation period last year was really strange with lack of camps and stuff like that. So um I will say, though, the talent composite, which I don't think 247 has up for this coming year, we're we're much closer than the recruiting rankings would tell you because of those transfers. So edges us a little closer to that. Now, again, there's some teams out there who are well, well, well ahead of us. So uh, you want to talk some NFL draft? I do, in fact. And let's talk about your thoughts, Alan on where these particular Gators were drafted. And we're going to get your thoughts through a game you developed, which I which I love. I love these games you put together. This is going to be a reach 
or steal game. Now you only gave yourself two choices. There could have been like a on the money, reach on the money or steal, but you've just got reach or steal. So I don't know what happens if it feels about right, but I'm going to go through each Gator picked and the ones that were not picked that got picked up as undesignated free agents. And you're going to tell me whether you thought that it was a reach or steal. Let's start with Kyle Pitts round one, pick four to the Falcons. Uh, Somehow this is still a steal. I'm not normally one who would advocate picking a tight end in the in the top ten uh, for positional value reasons, but uh, as you've heard us gush and the national media really catching up to what Gator Nation knew that Kyle Pitts is special. And I think for a team like the Falcons, that was a nice fit. I think he was the most talented non-quarterback in this draft, and so to get him at four is nice, even though that's very high. He's the highest drafted tight end of all time, but still, it feels like at least good value there. So I, I mean, I think Pitts is going to dominate in the NFL. I will also go steal there because I think with, without an injury entering into his career, so something unforeseen, which you can't draft on the future that you can't see, he should become one of the greatest tight ends ever to play the game. And if you're trying to draft in the top part of the first round, that's what you want is you want a guy who's a starter is actually just the hope even in the first round. But to get a guy who most people are going to say is a consensus kind of hall of fame projection, that's a great pick at one, two, three, or four. And it's a pick when the NFL is increasingly utilizing tight ends, vertical passing games, one-on-one matchups. They are like an incredible chess piece. So I, I agree. I think that was really wise by the Falcons. They have a million needs, obviously, but I just I don't think they could pass up a guy that is that talented and could be there for a long time. And also just a high character guy, too, which I think helped bolster his draft status. All right. Kadarius Tony, I love reading this guy's name. We highlighted him in, yeah, in that wow. one particular offseason saying he has this kind of talent. The question is, will he turn the corner and work? And boy, did he ever. And it was great to see him get rewarded with this first round pick, pick number 20. To the Giants, your Jacksonville Jaguars, your head coach, Urban Meyer, was really salty. He didn't get him. He actually mentioned he really wanted to get Kadarius right. Tony. So how do you feel about this one, reach or steal? Uh, it pains me to say, but I'm going to say reach a little bit. Not because of maybe Tony's potential talent. Just you have to do risk-reward here. And I think it's a little high for me taking a, a wide receiver of his like profile. And again, he's kind of a, a little bit of a one of one guy. There's not really anybody I've ever seen play like him, but with his slight frame and injury history, that would make me hesitant about taking him that high. Now, again, it's kind of the whole, if this is how you think about the draft, right? At some point it becomes a value and you go, I don't care what the risk is. The value is so high. We will take him for me. It was just a little high, but not so much. I, and this could be a home run. So it was definitely boom bust for them, as Tony is has been throughout his career. So maybe just a slight reach for me, although I really think he's going to be fun in the NFL. This is an interesting one because I want to read you like who was around him because this is a lot of, I think, how the value works. And then tell me what you're thinking, right? So, all right, you've got, you know, you've got Alex Leatherwood goes at 17, which most people consider to be a tremendous huge, huge reach. reach. Big, biggest Find, reach no the, surprise, the Raiders, yeah, right? That's yeah. a, we're not doing it on him, but it's a reach. Then you had Jalen Phillips, who Miami took at 18 as a defensive end. Then you have Jamin Davis from Kentucky, who's an inside linebacker, who was taken at 19. Uh, 21 is Quiddy Pay, Michigan, defensive end. 
Caleb Farley is a cornerback, Virginia Tech. You have an offensive lineman that goes to, to Minnesota. Najee Harris goes to Bama, then Travis Etienne at running back. So here's the question I want to ask you. Would you rather have Najee Harris or Travis Etienne or Tony? Uh, Tony. Well, that's because I fundamentally disagree with taking running backs in the first round. I also agree with you there, but I was a setup question. So <laughs> They're rather fungible. I Even for a team like the Chiefs last year who were taking – Edward Solaire, who, you know, they're back of the round. This guy seems like a perfect fit for them. I can excuse that, but still, I would rather take somebody else because you can probably find a guy who can do 85%, 90% of what he can do much later, right? And so for the Steelers, this is a perfect encapsulation. They needed a running back. I think Najee Harris is an amazing running back, but they have no offensive line. Pick a guy in the fifth round, he's going to be able to run to the same wall as Najee Harris is. I just, not that he's not going to be better, but I think, I mean, last year, the Jaguars undrafted free agent, James Robinson, very good. Now, is Etienne and Harris better? Probably. How much better and at what price? So, uh, I'm fine. Wide receiver, pick 20. Personally, I would devalue that position a little bit. I, in the first round, I'm looking for um, linemen, offensive and defensive corners. I mean, safety was maybe right, depending on like late in the first round. Wide receivers fine, but for me, this is a bigger team building philosophy kind of conversation. But when I say reach, I don't mean like wow, the talent level for him is what are you doing? Like the Leatherwood thing was like. He might be fine, but you're taking a potential guard. You could have gotten that. Also, you could have gotten him around or maybe not two, probably, but at least around later. So you have to know what everybody else is thinking about that person, too. So I'm going to go with this being on the money. And I say that because I think given the information we got post-draft, Tony was probably not going to last very many picks later. No, but that so, doesn't mean you should take him. Right, but I'm going to I'm gonna go with on the money, meaning the market, there was more than one team that was on Tony at this level. I'm going to go with that. But I also think this. I think Tony is home run potential. He's also completely normal player potential. But I say home run because, again, the league continues to go to more four and five wide sets where you're trying to get one-on-one matchups. And as we talked about on this podcast, none of these guys who all got drafted into the NFL – that Tony went against had even a chance of guarding him last year. He was torching everyone. Totally. I have questions about him being with the Giants. That's a problem. Yes. It would have been much better, I think, for his own personal development had he gone later to a more complete team because he is not a guy, and this is where I'm going to give you credence to your argument, he is not a guy on his own that's going to do anything to change your team. But he is a finishing piece, I think, on the right team that drastically changes how you're covered. So either way... I'm going to go on the money there. I think he's a couple of picks, you know, where he could have been. But I like his potential upside. I don't love that he's with the Giants. I think that's, you know, that's something I don't love. Next up on the docket, most everyone's favorite, my favorite, Kyle Trask. Pick 64 round two to the Tampa Bay Bucks. Reach or steal? Well, a total steal for him as a player. I love the value they got there, especially for as accomplished a player as he is to get him there. I mean, great value. If I were the bucks, I would not have picked him because they were loading up for this year. And the second round, I think I would have wanted to take a player who 
is going to play for me this year. And for them, that's not going to be the case unless bad things happen. Now they got a quarterback in the future, but that's not how they, they basically went all in on everything, re-signed everybody. So I don't love the pick for them. I love the situation for Kyle Trask himself though. He doesn't have to come in and play right away. He gets to sit behind the legend himself, Tom Brady. So that's great. Uh, so huge value for the Bucks, theoretically, although actually I wouldn't have done what they did. Yeah, this is fascinating on so many levels. First, let us let me ask you this. Why do you think, on this very podcast I had said I thought Trask would be a first-round pick, why do you think Trask fell to this position? Well, part of it is the sheer number of quarterbacks that were taken in the first round um, who are valued above him. Quarterbacks tend to rise, so in a vacuum, somebody probably would have, like, who needed a quarterback, maybe have moved back in the first into the first round and taken him. But then once all those teams have quarterbacks, then there's a little bit of like a free fall kind of potential. And he didn't fall that far, obviously. But I think there's just in NFL eyes, they see like maybe a little bit of a ceiling on him potentially. I think we would argue that a little bit. But um, that's part of the reason I think he fell. And again, some people are thinking he's going to fall further than that. I, I think this is about as far as he would have fallen. Somebody would have come up there and got him there maybe a couple picks into the third round yeah i think there's two main reasons why one the oklahoma game which we talked about yeah and the reason is we talked about at length on a previous podcast this behavioral component uh that all of us have in it. it's called hurting and as humans we like to be together in fact we'd much rather be wrong together than right by ourselves. and so oklahoma game happens the herd is going to want to go back to that two-star rating, didn't play a lot, didn't have his star players. And so the narrative that got built that really caught steam was that Trask was the product of excellent talent around him, which the film does not say that's the case based upon the placement of those balls. There's plenty of quarterbacks you can watch where it's some guy just making incredible catch after incredible catch on a bad ball. Not the case with Trask, but that began to persist. And then secondarily, it killed him to miss the senior bowl. That was brutal that he had that injury. He couldn't go because that's where quarterbacks can make Very up true. a tremendous amount of ground because the NFL coaches put them through a ton of stuff. That was an entire week he missed, which I think would put the nail in the coffin for him being a first round pick. And then I think most importantly for him, and this is what I think is really exciting, Alan, I, I read countless scouts' opinions because obviously I had spent a ton of time, probably more than almost anyone else, evaluating Kyle Trask. And you couldn't find one, really one, I challenge you to find one, that wouldn't watch the game film and talk about how he could make every throw. And that's what's interesting about Kyle Trask because you'd find that he's a little slower, his top arm talent's not there. But typically, if you want to find a knock on a guy, it'll be he can't make the deep out. He can't throw the ball deep. He can't throw the ball on a slant. He can't, whatever. It was always can make every throw question about his NFL ceiling, which of course was similar to a Tom Brady kind of look, not athletic enough, whatever. So the irony of him going to a Tom Brady team is amazing. But I think most importantly, Alan, Bruce Arians is known as a quarterback guy. Totally. So here's a quarterback guy on a team, as you mentioned, that's stacked, that you're thinking it's probably looking for some help. That's not a quarterback of the future. They take Trask. Now, Trask, a guy who who has proven to soak up everything from the environment around him, gets to go learn from Tom Brady, who also actually helps younger quarterbacks. I cannot think of a better scenario. No. He's on a team that valued him, that appreciates him, that doesn't need him, that took him. 
I don't know. It's hard to think this could be any better for him because even if Tom plays till he's 50, Trask will get two or three years and he'll get traded or get moved, soaking up everything from Tom Brady, and then he'll be ready for his opportunity. Oh, but it's a homer. It's the ideal place for him. grand slam. Yes. So, and this is what's beautiful is so often, although sure, he could have gotten more money if he was in the first round, he could have had this happen to him. If I'm an NFL player, my goal is to get in the best situation for myself. And I think he has just done it for him and his makeup and how he views things and how it's going. I could not think of a better spot learning from a quarterback who's basically just like him, who's just like him. It seems unbelievable. It seems too good to be true. And it's exciting, and I'm, I'm happy for him as well. Yes, so. I could not be more happy with that. I was so stoked when that pick came in. Amazing. Uh, again, my I talked about my it was in my team building mode, uh, but when I turn and look at it from Kyle's perspective, as you said, wow, dream scenario. Yeah, absolutely amazing. All right, let's go to the next one up from from one end to the other here. Marco Wilson, fourth round, pick one thirty six. In my mind, this is a huge reach, right? Um, I understand why it happened. He had unbelievable measurables at the pro day. He ran so fast, jumped so high, lifted so much. So if you if you believe that there's a talented corner in there and you can fix him, then you've basically got the measurables of like a first round pick. The tape would show you you have the measure you have the tape of like a undrafted free agent. Marco could be successful. So I could eat my words on this. Well, let me say this. This is about finding value in the draft and and reach or steal. It's not necessarily whether players are going to be successful or not. But he's got a long way to go and a lot of recovery to make from what he put on film this last year. So from a value perspective, huge reach. He could still be an excellent pro because obviously he has the talent to do it. Yeah, this is where the rubber meets the road for me. You know, this is where my bias against projection and my bias towards observed reality just comes fully into view. I loved Marco Wilson. He just has not been the same since the knee injury. I mean, the film says it so clearly. So I suppose what Arizona is telling themselves is, hey, look, this guy's still the same athlete he was before. He's got a mental block, which we've seen on film. He does not flip his hips quickly. He does not do all the things he's done before. It's not because he doesn't have it. He has it. We need to unlock his brain to reconnect to his leg, to turn like he used to, and he will be what he was. So there's rationale to believe that. I he's want also to... not playing with any urgency. He's not Correct. playing with aggression. Like Exactly. I mean, there's so many mental errors, obviously. So. Yeah, and the second thing you can say, which NFL teams say, is he was in a system where he was virtually uncoached. Which is true. They're going to look at the film. They're going to see these things. That These are all the best case scenario right. things. So that's what they're telling themselves. But I still go reach because, again, at the end of the day, there is, there's just so much film with him getting torched. And he's not getting torched by NFL caliber receivers. He's getting torched by everyone. Um, so I hope it turns out for him because, again, I loved Marco Wilson. And everything we talk about on the show is not personal. It's not a personal vendetta against one or the other. The guy threw a shoe. It was a bad decision. Um, it shouldn't brand him for the rest of his life. He should be able to, you know, get some grace and come back. I don't think he's handled himself well since then. I don't think he's made positive comments since then. I don't think he's done himself any favors, but physically he's an athlete. He was, that's a reason why he was so sought after out of high school. The film says he's not a good football player right now at the NFL level. We'll see if he can turn it around, but 
the fourth round pick right there, that is definitely a reach. Yeah, at some point I would, even all the things I said, I would draft him yes. because he has those measurables and you could say, well, if you fix it, he could be like an all pro guy. So he's worth the risk at this level because I'm not risking much. A fourth round pick to me is still really valuable. It's, yeah, I agree. And that's the key. Like in fantasy football, I think you start taking the Marco Wilson's like round seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, somewhere in there, depending on your league and your draft. In in the NFL, this is this is too early, I think. So reach. All right. Evan McPherson, round five, pick one forty nine. So this has to be a reach for me. It has zero to do with Evan. So all the people on our football thread, uh, I love Evan McPherson. I think he's gonna be a great NFL kicker if I know how to project that, which I don't. But I would never draft a kicker. Period. Maybe late seventh round, last pick of the draft kind of thing. But that's just my own philosophy. So that it wouldn't matter what pick he was, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have been in favor of it, but I do think he's going to be successful. Yeah, super reach. Unless you're drafting Justin Tucker, and at the time you didn't know you were drafting right. Justin Tucker, exactly. who's the greatest kicker of all time. There, there's you No, you can't. You cannot do it. You just can't do this. It amazes me this is still done in the NFL. Anyone who's good at fantasy football knows that you should not <laughs> draft a kicker, but it's also true in the NFL. You shouldn't draft a kicker. There's too many undrafted guys, and Evan is great. Obviously, he was the... First one picked, I think maybe the only one picked. But for me, I just philosophically wouldn't do it. Maybe a seventh round pick. Maybe, maybe, maybe a late yeah. seven. And but. this shows what we said all along. We get questions about Evan. Do you still think he's a yes, absolutely. He's barely missing the ball. His kick arc is perfect. The NFL's gonna love him. And they did. And you saw that despite the fact that he did not have a great season for himself, I think, in what he would view. Uh, it's great to get drafted as a kicker. So great for him. We love Evan. But yeah, if I'm a team, that's a reach. All right. Sean Davis. I was really excited to see Sean Davis. Yeah. I had loved him consistently. I'd never understood why he, we, we just, he was in a timeshare with people that I can't even and don't want to mention anymore. Yet he goes to the NFL and gets drafted in the fifth round pick 165. I think this is a steal. Now he could have been drafted later and I would have understood it. I wouldn't have picked him much before this. So it's not a huge steal. So that's, you know, I'm playing my own little game here, but good value there. I think he's going to be successful and I like the pick. Yeah, I think this is on the money, but I think what they saw on film is what we talked about. He's a good cover guy. He's a good tackler. He's very smart. He's always around the ball. I think he's a guy that can be a consistent NFL player, which in round five is what you're, you're hoping to get a starter. But yeah. even if you can just get a guy that makes your roster in round five, that's good. I think he's got all the tools for that. But again, I'm happy for him because I just felt like he could have been so much more here. Right. And, and, and a, part, a part of it is like a little justification for the fact that how can you have some NFL talent on your defense and have the defense that we had, which brings up our next guy here uh, to Daryl Slayton. So Slayton goes just after him round five, pick 173. How do you feel about the Slayton pick? So I'm going to like contradict myself here and I'm going to say reach because I think value system wise, you probably could have gotten him lower. He was mostly projected as like an undrafted seventh round guy. Late round NFL draft, who knows, really. So if you like a guy in the fifth round, maybe take him. I do think he's got, he has a chance to be really successful. We talked about him all year as a guy who is starting to unlock it, who is playing well. He has a huge future. So I don't hate the pick at all. Maybe slight reach, but um, I'm in favor of valuing him as a player. Yeah, this feels on the money to me. I'm going to go steal because he played in the SEC. On film, he was handling double teams, which the NFL loves. He has the size. 
He has all the things you want. And Green Bay takes him, which, <laughs> you know, the Aaron Rodgers drama continues. I, I don't, I think Aaron Rodgers has not endeared himself to a lot of people, but I can't say that he's wrong about his entire career there and how they have just continually drafted no one on offense, which is mind-numbing. Well, they did draft an offensive lineman and a receiver in second and third Yes, round, but if so. you look at the history of their picks, You're it's right. like it's, it's all like defense. consistently defense. And their defense, honestly, is like it's been generally fine, but, yeah. but never amazing. Anyway, I'd be frustrated. But I do like this pick. I'm with you. I think maybe you could have let him go a little further. But I think all in all, you're trying to pick upside at this area, and he does have the potential, totally. I think, to be an NFL starter. And at round five, that's great. Again, if you're not someone who follows the NFL draft a lot, a round five pick does not have – it's not – the odds are not in favor of that person becoming a starter. They're in favor of them not being on your team a couple years later, right? But it, which is I, pretty remarkable when you think about that. Yes. So if you can get a starter out of that pick, it's a good pick. I do think you can find guys in round five, though. Oh, so, you can. It happens all the time. Slayton is an example of this. Round six and round seven are – a little more darts kind of, or you're picking very, I want a special teams guy. You're getting either hyper specific or you're going home run. Um, so he was right in the middle of that. So this is about, this is fine. A little high for me in terms of what I would think the rest of the league values. Mm-hmm. So this would just be about me collecting value on the pick. The next one though. Yeah. The next one stone Forsyth, round six, pick two Oh eight. Maybe one of the steals of the draft, in my opinion, to get a potentially starting caliber offensive lineman, Left tackle, right tackle, either one. This is a guy who can make your roster and back up both positions, maybe be a starter down the line. I I expect him to go much earlier. I was really surprised that he fell this far. So happy for him that he got drafted. And, yeah, huge, huge deal. Yeah, the Seahawks take him, which have they have serious issues with their yeah. offensive line. The knock on Stone, as we've said all along, in my opinion, is that he he can't be a left tackle. He's just not quick enough to go with the speed rushers. But I think I love this pick if you're going to move him to right tackle. And as you mentioned, in an emergency scenario, to have a guy who can play both tackle spots is immensely helpful. That's the most important offensive line spot in football. And I do think with his size and his strength, despite his lack of get off on the ball, he could be a guy who sticks around and plays for a while, and that's a very valuable pick in round six of the NFL draft. I would think, and here's why it's such a value, the most likely outcome in my mind is a guy who plays seven or eight years in the league, mostly as a backup. But that's a really successful career, especially for this late in the draft. That's why I would think I was surprised he didn't go much higher yeah. because his like value over replacement level is so much higher than yeah, the there. rest of the guys who got taken in that spot. Right. And it's interesting to take that's like, that's where it all comes down to like, are you swinging for the fences in round six or round seven? What is kind of your orientation? Do you want a guy who maybe can never be a starter? I don't know. Either way. Um, I like, I like that pick as well. Okay. Now maybe, maybe the second or third most interesting story of draft day, not only for Florida, but for any player that didn't get drafted. That's Trevon Grimes who got snapped up by the Eagles. Almost everyone had him getting drafted. Some people as high as the third or fourth round, but pretty much nobody had him not getting drafted. What happened here? I don't know. I've seen some speculation. Um, maybe people felt like personal things stemming from Ohio State time, but I don't know. That wasn't a big deal when he came down here. Unless something came up in the pre-draft process that hasn't come out, whether injury like medicals that they were unsure of. A lot of times people take a guy off the board because the medicals are personal. That feels like what maybe have had to happen. I don't, it's weird 
no one's come out and said anything. So I, I don't know. Um, and guys fall and they get undrafted when you're expecting them to get drafted. It's not like the biggest shock of all time, but it does feel like there's something we don't know. I'm going to go super steel on this undrafted. Well, yeah, agent, for though, sure. Because from best I can tell in the community of Gainesville, he was always a fine guy. He would go out around town. People knew who he was. He was a nice dude. Medical is very possible, as you mentioned. I mean, something happened. This is virtually unexplicable. If you just do a Google of his name, what you're going to find out is the most surprising undrafted guy is him. And then Alabama's Dylan Moses. But Moses makes a lot more sense. Injury he had a catastrophic right. knee injury. He didn't play very well in 2020. He just hasn't been himself. He, he got torched all year long. We talked about it chronicling Bama. That's not the story with Grimes. In fact, on film, as we mentioned, Grimes was often the Gator receiver doubled. He was often the one drawing most attention all year long. I was shocked he did Same. not get drafted. Absolutely shocked, which therefore means the Eagles picking him up, I think, is phenomenal. I think they're going to have an NFL caliber player on their roster. He does need to clean some things up, as we've talked about before. He does need to improve his route running. But all in all, I, I love the pickup by the Eagles. And for Grimes, whatever happened, hopefully we'll learn one day. Obviously, unfortunate for him to miss out on some of the money that comes your way by being an NFL draft pick. And now he's really going to have to scratch and claw his way into the roster. Well, there is a benefit. Grimes is an interesting guy, but like a lot of people would say you're better off being an undrafted free agent than you are being a late seventh round pick because you get to choose your you location. Mm -hmm. The money isn't that much different. Sometimes it can even be a little better if there is some competition around that, um, around getting you in because they can offer you something. But hopefully it works out well for him. Eagles definitely need the receiver. So I theoretically a nice landing spot for him. We'll see. Yeah, and the Eagles now are like a building a Bama, Florida SEC team out there. Uh, nice for them. All right, so Heggie goes to the Giants. How do you feel about this one? I think it's fine. I, I would have thought most likely he would have been maybe a late-round, seventh-round pick, but only slightly. Um, to see him not undrafted is not like totally surprising. I, I think it's a really good chance to make a roster. I don't know the Giants' offensive line situation up and down, but um, I don't think they're a team that's – totally set there where they have a vaunted roster. So maybe a good opportunity for him. And I, I think he's a versatile guy who can play a lot of spots. So I like him a lot. I, I'm hoping he does well there. Yeah, certainly we hope so. I, I think this is illustrates what we've been harping on and what every Gator fan has been harping on is this is for a team like Florida to be as good as they were last year, looking at the offensive linemen that again, we have and, and are coming out, will come out. It's just, it's hard to explain our struggles at offensive line, our lack of talent, and yet nothing to address that, which we've discussed before. Okay, lastly, and we save this one, of course, for last, picked up as an undesignated free agent, is one Donovan Steiner with the Steelers. Yeah, I can't believe it. I mean... I can believe it because of his body type and size. Yeah, well, that, this is why you take you invite a guy into your campus totally because fine. he is big, can run, I don't think he has a prayer making the league. I, God bless you, Donovan Steiner, if you can do it. I hope he does. I, mean, I, I hope, hope he does, does. Yeah, despite the fact that I've maligned him most of his career, I certainly still hope that he turns yes. the corner, figures it out, and makes it. But that's that, that would be a great story. Nearly impossible. Um, yeah, but the, he's the type of guy who gets invited to a camp rather than like maybe a smaller, more productive player. Because you just go, if if the thing was that he didn't understand something or he wasn't coached right. Then all of a sudden you have a guy who can make your roster 
I mean, the NFL churns these guys through. So not a huge surprise, but also it was kind of, you know, a little bit amusing. Yeah, and that's well said, like you mentioned, and that's a key thing, is is oftentimes this is the cruel end for a lot of really skilled and hardworking college players is a guy like Steiner will get the chance over them because they're just more athletic. And that's life because you can look and say, I just know that guy can't contribute at the NFL level despite the fact that he's perfect. He's a great teammate, does everything right. He's maximized his ceiling. He's reached his potential. I've got a guy like Steiner who's nowhere near what his athletic ceiling would be, does a lot of things wrong, seemingly doesn't get it. Yet if I could, like you said, maybe turn a light bulb on here and there, see if I can kind of get in there, maybe he'll become something. So you take, you kind of take that guy, which makes sense. Okay, let's do a fun little game here. I asked us to rank the coaches, right? So I the the impetus for this conversation is we talk about maybe how Dan Mullen is, you know, where does he place amongst his other peers? Because you can talk about maybe wanting to replace him, but who would you actually replace him with? For people out there, where, where does he really stand in kind of – the overall um, realm of college football coaches. So I was like, let's put our, let's put it down. Right. So I could say, you could say he's not a top 10 coach or he's a top 10 coach, but really when you let's, let's rank it and see how do you really think? Um, So why don't we just start with, I don't know quite how to do this. Let's start with your list, James. Okay. Why don't you tell me first your top five? Okay. And then I, I like that. I was going to say, let's do five and five so we can break down the differences. Uh, but first, I want to ask you a little trivia question Okay, before we start. Entering in to March of 2021, there were six active coaches that had won a national title. Now there's only five, but there were six active coaches that had won a national title. Can you name those six coaches? Active coaches entering into 2021? Active coaches entering in 2021. And again, one of them is no longer. That's okay. a big hint there, but there you go. All right, Saban. Yep. Dabo. Yeah, obviously. Jimbo. Yep. Ed O. Correct. Oh man, this is where it starts to get funky here. Um, won a national title. There's not been a lot because it's been shared by the same people. That's partly what it tells you a lot about what we're doing, right? Is there's only there were only six out of all the coaches in college football that are active. There's somebody who's old, probably. I should know this. All right, what are the other two? There's an obvious one, and then there's an unobvious. There is. One. They're both actually obvious, but they're both they're both different levels of absurd. Mac Brown. <laughs> okay. But the most right. obvious. That's ob- true. Th- there's the the one you're going to kick yourself on, especially with the hint that obviously he's no longer there anymore. Is Les Miles. <laughs> okay, but the okay. There you go. But Wait. that's wild. So look at the list. This is what's crazy. Look at this just for a second. Saban, Sweeney, Jimbo Fisher. Check, check, check. Legit coaches. Great. Ed Orgeron, who I have said on this very podcast, was clueless. had no idea what he was doing. Wheels were going to fall off. Wins a national title. Mac Brown, who who was fine. He's just older now. He's well, a good football coach. It shows coach. that he's a great coach. He's, he's a good... North- I agree. He, he's different. He's a good football coach. And then Les Miles, who... There's no way to describe... Less miles. I mean, he had his moment. He's fine, whatever. But obviously, really crazy though to think those are your guys. That's now there's it. just five. There's just five guys who have won a national title who are coaching football. That's insane. Okay, now to my list. Number one, obviously, what are we even doing here, right? Nick Saban, easy layup, yep. done. Number two, I think also super easy, Dabo, done. Number three for me is Jimbo Fisher. 
Everyone on this podcast knows I love myself some Jimbo Fisher. Yeah. I think he's rising at AM. He's talking trash this offseason. If you already saw, if you haven't seen it, he basically came out during a booster meeting like a couple of days ago and said that he's definitely going to make sure that he beats Nick Saban before he retires. Like he's he's going to beat him. He's going to, you know, give him a little beat down, um, which Saban responded to, which is nice. Well, he said, what, in golf? Yeah, right. Exactly. In football? He's like, in football? Which was a nice response. <laughs> Number four, uh, Lincoln Riley, who has not won a national title yet, but I think has proven to be an excellent football coach, a guy I would take here in an absolute second. And then number five for me, which is interesting, and I'm going to get nuanced with how the rest of these go. I think for me, those four, for me, are the clear top four right now. And then this gets much more nuanced. I go Ryan Day, although I have a lot of questions about how good of a football coach he is, but he is a phenomenal recruiter. And by default, he's already checking a box that most of the rest of these guys in this list are not going to check. So I have to put him there just by that level. I don't think he's proven to be a Lincoln Riley style football coach yet. It's too early to know, but I'm going to put him at five. I like it. Um, let me just comment on Day himself. I I think he's probably going to be great, and I would actually maybe hire him above some people I would put on a list. But the question mark is he inherited an absolutely perfect machine and he hasn't screwed it up i don't expect him to but i just feel like i don't have enough data on him to really know yeah i think that's true all right so my top five it's going to enrage some people um of course the top two Saban and Dabo. Saban, best of all time easy Dabo. there you go and uh, tyler rummery just yeah, please buckle yourself in wherever you are just just anchor yourself in your chair all right number three kirby smart number four Riley, number five, Fisher. So smart at three for me. He's recruiting at a level that only like really Nick Saban has ever done. And I, you can tar and feather the guy. He's made some mistakes. But he was as close to winning a national title and not doing it as you could possibly be. So to if you play that game out the second half, he wins probably most of the time. I, I, maybe you can discredit from that you can say he's not won a national title but i mean that is like a tough thing to say because he almost 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 did it and yeah he's recruiting at a mega pace so whether he's paying people or whatever you think he's doing he's doing it so um and i got fisher at five you that three four five for me are fairly fungible too like if you i wouldn't quibble with moving anybody up or down there yeah, I like that the difference between ours and the top five is is you have Kirby Smart. I think a lot of listeners would have thought I would have had Kirby Smart there because I tend to stump for Kirby Smart, and I have Ryan Day. But in reality, if a few more years go by, Ryan Day could become Kirby Smart for me, and he could wind up in the same place that Kirby is. Um, I don't think there's any way that you can argue, Alan, with what you're saying about the fact that he really was. Again, if you look at this list and listen as we go on the rest of it, nobody was closer to winning a national title. And that was his team. He wasn't like, you know, I know that he obviously had some guys from the previous era, but more or less, that was his team. He was there. He's been there more than once, right? He's been close. Uh, He has his issues. All these coaches have issues besides really the two that are crushing everyone else. So there's that. All right, for me, moving on to number six, I have your boy, Matt Campbell. Let's go. is... I think proven to be a absurdly great coach. What he's doing at Iowa State is beyond comparison. 
it's incredible that he hasn't had a chance to get a marquee marquee job yet you know the best job he's been offered yet maybe isn't one of the best best yet I don't know yet we don't know right turn down Texas maybe pop probably we don't know whatever reason he loves Iowa State this is going to cap him because unless something absolutely insane happens he's never going to win a national title at Iowa State so keep an eye on him but pure coaching building a program wise I think I could put him above Ryan Day that's where I want to get to but I just cannot ignore the fact that Ryan Day's out of place in Ohio State where he's recruiting at an absolute top three level every year. And Matt Campbell just can't do that. But coaching-wise, if I'm ranking an X's and O's coaching list, Matt Campbell is going to move up some spots. Well, this is what's interesting. It's way, 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 way harder to win at Iowa State than it is at Ohio State. Way harder. I mean, magnitude's harder, which is why it's interesting that I have Day ahead of him. But yeah. I'm trying to caveat that by sure, looking sure. at it through the lens of like, but I love—I can't overstate it. I love what Matt Campbell has done yep. there. He'd be skyrocketing up my list, potentially he, in the third spot, maybe tied with Jimbo Fisher right now for like what I think about his ability to build a program somewhere. And he's number six for me as well. And uh, yeah, so winning a place like that is unbelievable. All right, why don't you give me your rest of your top? Now 10? I go number seven with Luke Fickle. Okay, you no, know I love you do Luke love Fickle. Luke Fickle. I mean, Cincinnati gave your boy Kirby Smart all he could handle in the bowl game, which is the bowl game doesn't really matter. But I love what he's doing there. I, I think he's a fantastic X's and O's coach. He's a great defensive coach. I like him, and the reason that I put him above number eight, which is Kirby Smart, this is nuanced. I just think that Kirby has underperformed for how well he's recruited. And True. that's, that's by the way, that's a great knock to have as a coach. Like if I was a coach, although you could get more pride out of overperforming from your poor recruiting, you can never win that way. So at least Kirby can win, right? The guys like Kirby, they could win. They could even luck into a national title if the stars align because they have so much talent. But certainly you can knock him for the fact that they have not gotten the most out of their teams. And there's been some glaring issues. I mean, sitting in the stadium in the Florida Georgia game last year, Alan, and watching them not play JT Daniels, which again, maybe there's this sneaky narrative of insurance and other stuff. Yeah, I yeah. want to believe that could be true. And if that's the case, then Kirby Smart gets a major pass for last year. I don't know. There's too many questions there. So Kirby for me is eight. Number nine is Brian Kelly. It's hard to ignore just how good Brian Kelly's been at Notre Dame. Mm -hmm. It's also uninspiring because he gets beat like a drum by all of the best teams in the Final Four, but he's doing it at Notre Dame where it's impossible to recruit the same level of athlete. He's an excellent football coach there, remarkably consistent. You can't deny that. And then I have number 10, and this is what really is interesting to me. Number oh 10 gosh. and 11 and 12, they were kind of impossible, but I can't even believe I'm doing this, but I'll tell you why. Number 10, I have Ed Orgeron, which leaves Dan Mullen not on my top 10, but... Ed Orgeron is here because I, I felt like there's a couple of things he has done that have been brilliant that he did. So one, he brought in Joe Brady. That was him. That was his idea. He wanted to do it. He wanted to move that, and he did it. Number two, and this is what I'm really leaning heavily on, is how he handled last year. He made a horrible hire in Bo Pelini. That was a terrible, stupid hire. We talked about it at the time, and he fired him after two games. No more Bo Pelini. That shows me that at Orgeron... That was his buddy. That was like his boy, Alan. He'll make a tough decision. Number two, his comments in parallel with Dan's comments throughout the year could not have been more opposite. Ed O was like doing anything he could to try to resurrect his season. The wheels fall off. Guys are quitting on him. What does he do? He comes into Florida and he beats us. He beats us with half a daggone team. 
It's it's insane. So this just shows me, I think, more than anything, that there are not, in my opinion, like 10 amazing college football coaches. Ed Orgeron is a remarkably flawed coach, but he's a great rah-rah guy. He's likable. He will make tough decisions. And for that reason alone, he wins sort of the tiebreaker over Dan Mullen, who I think has proven not to make maybe a single tough decision unless he has to make that decision because there's no choice left. Felipe Franks break his leg. Or who knows what's going to happen with Grantham. Grantham leaves on his own. I don't know. He's not making the decisions that put him into the top 10. Whereas at least if Edo's my coach, I know he's going to do something to try to saber rattle or change my fate. So that is my top 10. Saban, Dabo, Jimbo, Lincoln Riley, Ryan Day, then 6 through 10, Matt Campbell, Luke Fickle, Kirby Smart, Brian Kelly, Edo, Dan Mullen at 11. All right, let's hear your 6 through six through 10. All right, I've got Dan Mullen at seven. I'm going to circle back around to him. Because Campbell's at six, reminder. Yeah. Alan's got Campbell at six, not Campbell at six. Um, Franklin. James Franklin. Yeah, a lot of people would put him in a top 10 list. And not that he's actually blown the doors off at Penn State. He's been successful there. But the fact that he won like that at Vanderbilt, which it's is remarkable. almost impossible. It's honestly incredible. Um, but these guys kind of run together. I mean, Pat Fitzgerald, love what he does at um, Northwestern. Brian yeah, Kelly. he he's, he's I I wanted to put him in because again, like that's yeah. the guy who's self-selecting. It's impo- it's impossible to win there and he's been phenomenal. So that's another great example of a guy I'd, I'd love to stick in there. I'd put him over Edo for like culture program building. If he would go to LSU, I would include him. But he's not there, so it's like anyway, I love that cuz how do you weigh those factors? Yeah, but he's me, a phenomenal football coach. I obviously value down. like degree of difficulty there. Um and then so Brian Kelly at number 10 and then I just to throw him in there, I did have, because I wanted to put him on the map, I did have Ryan Day at 11. So I put Dan Mullen at, at seven because I wanted to actually say, who would I, if you just offered me a trade right now, I'll trade you this coach for this coach. Moving forward, not just past accomplishments, right? Because um, obviously Mac Brown, you'd have to say, in the past, you've been better. But I'm not going to trade him going forward because no. I don't know how long Mac, no, Bra- Mac Brown's like not. 90 of years old. Not. Of course not. I I would make I would do a trade straight up for all those guys ahead of him, and I would not do a trade straight up for the guys beneath him. Now, Franklin, maybe I would I would have a call about it, and Campbell would have a call. I don't know. I, that's my gut. I don't know. As much as you love Campbell, you wouldn't trade Dan Mullen for Matt Campbell right now? Well, there's the real world things if you're actually making change rather than like, they're not just both, I'm hiring one or the other. I'm actually having to flip them, which there's some cost in that. Um, but let's say they're both like, you know, free agents at the moment. Right, I know. Like yeah, hire yeah, one. Sure. But, you're, yeah, I get um, it. And yeah, and and Mullins won at a higher level than Campbell. So that six, seven, eight for me are a little are close. Um, even when you get up to five, like I would listen to the Dan Mullen over Jimbo Fisher argument. No. But <laughs> but I love I love Yeah, Jimbo for Fisher. sure. Yeah, no, and no even, you, you totally can't. A lot of people would. So but the, what this would. shows for me is that Dan Mullen for me is a top ten coach. Uh he's knocking on the door of the top five. And even I would listen to people trade him for anybody other than Saban and Dabo. Like, I think it's a legitimate argument that you could say he's, that you trade him for Kirby Smart or Riley or Fisher. I, I wouldn't personally do it necessarily, but I would listen to it. And I think it's reasonable. Um, and so that shows me that 
Florida is employing a top 10 coach. So did you put Ed O at 10 just so you could bump them all out of the top no, 10? No, I, I really didn't. In fact, I looked at it through the same lens that you did, and that's that's worth saying. So if we would, if we did two lists and one was top 10 X's and O's coaches, just a straight up like who coaches football the best, my list would look different, and you kind of heard me lean into that. I went with who are the guys I would take above Dan Mullen as my coach. Now, Ed Orgeron, again, I gave you my rationale. Like Ed O at Florida would be a raw, raw recruiting guy who's going to hire high-level specialists. And look, that model, love it or hate it, worked really well. He had one of the greatest teams ever to play the game in college football with that model. Dan Mullen has never hit a height that high. But most importantly, it was really this season that did it for me with how Ed O is handling the future of LSU football versus what Florida is doing, which is nothing. So I think yeah. this year, you could say it scarred me. You could say I dropped him. Um, I think coming into this year, I probably would have had Dan Mullen at you know maybe eight, maybe nine, somewhere in the top 10. And I think he slid down some because I just cannot justify the decisions that he has made, he is making, the things he is doing with a guy who's a winner. I don't see it. I see a guy who's a gatekeeper. And Ed Orgeron somehow was the gatekeeper who won a national title. And Brian Kelly, we explained his spot, you know, and I think the rest of these guys, I think they can all win a national title. And I guess what I'm saying, Alan, and this is going to be super sad. I don't know that Dan Mullen can win a national title and I'm betting against it, obviously, because there he is at 11 and I don't think he can do it. Whereas I do think these other guys all can and have or might or could if they were coaches of Florida. That's a good way to put it there because you have to put them all at the same place Yep. Um, to say who's better or who's worse. And sometimes fits are different, but that's also true. You know, um, but Edo, I don't think is a gatekeeper. I think he's the heavyweight who's going to knock you out. You're going to knock him out. I don't know if that's what well he did said, is actually. repeatable. So I think Probably at the not. end of next year, <laughs> we'll know, was that a Gene Chizik or was that like, or was last year a blip? Yeah. So a little more data on Edo is going to tell us, is it going to be every five years he might do something phenomenal and the Probably. rest of the years you're going to be like, what, do you, what is happening? Likely. Um, I think that's the likely so answer. I don't think Ed Orderon is going to stay at 10. I think he's going to go up to like three or four or he's going to go down to like 20. I totally agree. I 100% agree with that. But right now, he, the fact that he could win a national title is why I gave him the coin flip All right. nod. Look me straight in the face right now. Yeah, I'm doing it. All right, <laughs> Scott Strickland calls you and says, hey, yes. LSU is offering me a trade of Ed Orgeron Stop for Dan it. Mullen. That's crazy. Do you want me to do it? You would actually say yes. You would not say yes to that. I think I would say yes. You are out of your ever-loving mind. I'm telling you, I can't. I'm not. You know how much this season messed me up. The decisions that Dan, we kept. I, I know. Todd Grantham. We kept him. Ed Orgeron is not keeping Todd Grantham. Ed Orgeron would have gone out and tried to hire an NFL defensive coordinator. That's what he was doing. He was trying to hire the best guys. We go out and we hire guys. I I just don't I don't see it. From sure. Dan, Dan Mullen is is much smarter. He understands football at an infinitely higher level than Ed Orgeron. But Dan Mullen needs like a CEO to make hard decisions for him. Because he's not that guy right now. Whereas Edo will make a decision. But sure. yes, he's, he's a wild, crazy. I mean, I agree with you. I can't even believe I'm doing it. But yeah, maybe I'm just I'm I'm messed up. Yeah, from you the are decisions that were made from last so year. So I this is a funny one because he's so unique. Um, 
And he has to fit at LSU. He couldn't go. He couldn't. Else. No, it doesn't. It's not. Yeah. I mean, he's bizarre. I mean, you, you know, but, what are you going to do with him? I mean, Brian Kelly, would you trade him? It feels like that's yes. going to be an even trade. You would do it. Though. I would do it. Okay. I mean, look, do you think Dan Mullen would be winning like Brian Kelly is Notre Dame? I mean, seriously. Potentially, yes. Okay. I don't think so. And I'm I'm, a, I'm not a fan of Brian Kelly, but I, I think when you really look like at him it objectively, coach. what he has done at Notre Dame in the modern era is remarkable. Yes and no. I, there's a lot of question marks for him, and he's had a lot of. Success. There are a lot of question marks because he can't win. The, but I think they're similar. It's, I don't Neither care him about nor him. Dan can win a game against elite competition. They're well, in the same boat to me, which is well, why I think they're that's at partly because of 10, re- recruiting. But here's why Nick's, Nick's But Dan is, has no limitation on recruiting, and Brian Kelly does. That, that's what I mean, though. Yeah, that's yeah. why I take Brian Kelly. But I don't know. Also, you've not followed Notre Dame for 10 years. I think if you ask Notre Dame fans, some of the decisions that he's made and bad. some of the ways. Oh, I agree. Oh, like we said, like we said, if we could tear it, I prefer the tears, right? Because tears, right. you mentioned this. Tearing this becomes, this. Is, these are all flawed guys. Like we, there's not obvious scenarios here. And sometimes, this is to, I think, your point. Sometimes I'm a cow in a pasture and the grass is greener on the other side. Right. And it's true for someone else too. This would be, you've, I think you've struggled with this conversation. I would love to have like, all of the best podcasts from each of these schools on for like a roundtable discussion where we can play the would you trade your coach game? Because I would love to know, would a Notre Dame fan trade their coach for Dan Mullen? That'd be a fascinating conversation. Would they trade Brian Kelly for Dan Mullen? Like, or would we get a consensus here where like certain people would definitely trade? For, I think we would. We could develop like a crowdsourced top 10 list. It'd be pretty fascinating. Yeah, and that's why I think Matt Campbell is so high as well, is Iowa State would not... No way. Other than legitimately Nick Saban, I don't know if they would trade him you don't think they would take Dabo they, I, honestly I would I would I how could you not I mean Matt Campbell has struck gold there you have to stick with your guy yeah just because they're so they love him so much how can him. you not he's but here's the power of Nick Saban there's there's a fun game of like what's the lowest tier school that you could put him at that he would not make a playoff within five years unless I mean he's age-wise let's t- take him back like five years ago yeah so he has enough energy has enough figure mm-hmm I mean, that is a fun game because I think put him at put him at Arkansas. He gets his brand name right now. He gets to be Nick Saban right now. We're saying let's say Nick Saban five years ago. So yeah, so he's one still. He's still the yeah. Nick he's still Saban. Nick Saban. I mean, yeah, I don't, yeah, yeah. He could win at Arkansas. Why, why can't he? The facilities are great. The money's great. The support's there. He's gonna. I mean, he's Nick Saban. Yeah, he's a guaranteed NFL juggernaut machine. Every, every player's aware of that. They're gonna go there. Let's put him at Purdue. That's tough. I think he makes the playoff at Purdue. That could be tough. I, he's got to get a little lucky, but it's going to be the most efficient machine oh, yeah. possible. Not that he maybe win a national title, like yeah, like making the playoff, winning the Big Ten. No, no, I, I mean well, that's the key is he's got to beat Ohio State. I think he could do it. Yeah, I mean he's the greatest. Is it Purdue? Yeah, that's so that's why he's so much better than oh, he's like it's, everybody else. It's un- yeah, I mean it's unreal. I mean the fact of the matter is that we're considering that he could get into the playoff with Purdue, and it is possible. Within five, I mean, it's high. It's probably it's probably likely. Honestly, you're probably right because if he's now competing with Ryan Day, then that puts immense pressure on Ohio State. That's not there right now. It changes the resource allocation game. And again, he's Nick Saban. Like every single player knows, if I play for Nick Saban, I'm going to go to the NFL. That's my best chance. I love it. That's wow. a great. That's a great. Game. He should do it. Why not? This Just is like he's a, the greatest. Um, I never did this, but I know a lot of people would do this. Like on the old NCAA football game, like who's the worst program? And like, are one of the worst and pick them and can you win the national championship with them? Oh, absolutely. So that, you know, that's a fun new challenge. He should do it. He should. I used to always be the Idaho Vandals. That was my there team. There you go. I loved them. Vandals. Let's go. All right. The Gators, ranked number 17, 
I'm using ESPN's top 25 post spring. So a little bit arbitrary here, but I wanted to pick one. Does that feel too high or too low to you? I think it's just right. I think it could wind up being too high. But right now, at the start of the season, I think that's right where Florida is. I think if you look at talent on the roster, issues we have at certain position groups, question, super question at quarterback, question about how the coach will handle the decisions at quarterback, then that feels right. Historically, teams that are ranked there can either win a national title, which Florida cannot this year, but could win a national title or get bounced down to like 40th. And that, that feels right. You're kind of like on the 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 precipice of like a like a like a crown or like a triangle where you fall right. off one way or the other it's like a watershed moment right it's a it's a divide that's kind of that feels right I, I agree totally it feels like Florida could be way better let's say defensively we somehow turn a corner and, and play to the level that the talent is there you could have a top ten team or if the defense replicates what it did last year you're probably looking at a 30 or 40th team. And I think what's interesting about this Florida team, which we will obviously talk a lot about uh, into the season is we play Alabama, you know, third. Mm -hmm. And that is a game, in my opinion, depending on how it goes, that can change the entire rest of your season, either for good or for bad. If you play close, now I think we, we climb. If you get annihilated, things don't look good. It's very easy for your team to be in a very precarious position. The fan base will be in a very precarious position. And you can see an emotional narrative where that does not go the right way. If we if we had a schedule like last year, I think you could argue Dan Mullen is almost always going to beat the teams who are more talented than. That's what he does. And you can see an easy, you know, eight, nine, ten win season most of the time. But this year I think is that Alabama game I think is a it's just dangerous to play Alabama at that stage of the season with a team that's inexperienced and young. It, it just is. I can't wait for it. It's unbelievable. No, I'm stoked about it. But, you know, again, it's it's that's one of those things. That's one of those things. All right, playoff conversation. I'm glad that we're having this conversation. And I can't wait to hear your comments on this. Little history. Alan and I have had this discussion since we started the podcast. Do you want to expand the playoffs? Do you want to keep it the same? Alan would be a traditionalist. Uh, he likes to keep it generally the same. Now there's been a lot of talk, obviously, mm-hmm. about expanding the playoffs. and I'm They gonna, leaked it that they're discussing it. It's actually being discussed, which, thank God, it should be discussed. This is an improvement in my opinion. I've been saying this, but let's start with the question that I think most people were asking, are asking, and probably why the committee is considering expanding it, which is, are you, Alan, and college football fans in general, bored by the same teams every year competing for the national championship in football? lightly but it's funny because i don't this is the problem with expansions i don't know if you'd have more teams in the playoff but i don't know if you'd have different teams in the championship game which is why i'm reluctant to like move things but uh i wouldn't say i'm bored uh i would like to see new blood in there so if you found a system to facilitate that i think that would be fun um bored is maybe too strong a word though yeah, I would say I'm bored by seeing the same teams have a very short road to the championship. Yeah. What I love about college basketball is take Gonzaga. Excellent basketball team. Got hammered in the final by Baylor. Hammered. If there was only a final four, 
they would have played a phenomenally sensational game against UCLA, right? One of the games of the tournament, just absolutely incredible. And then they would have gotten beat like a drum by Baylor. End of story. Baylor, on the other hand, murdered Houston, murdered Gonzaga. Not that exciting. When you get a little bit more of the road, even if you get the same teams, it's just a little bit more. You get to know them a little bit more. Different teams get shots at them, which is exciting. Teams that don't typically get shots at them get shots at them. Like, yeah, I'd love to see Alabama play Cincinnati or someone like that. Even if they beat them like a drum, that's visually interesting. In a playoff game, you know, Goliath versus right David. Like, I like the idea of that, although... I think it's true. Like you said, look, talent-wise, these same teams are probably still going to be the ones competing. There's more of a story behind how they got That's there. Compelling. That, that I think, for me, is what I want to see. I want them to have a few more chapters in their story of playoff games that matter. I would like to see that. Uh, that's compelling to me. I, I'm not so opposed to it. I'm just not leading the charge for it because I this is conservative versus like progressive kinds of ideas in terms of what are the unintended consequences of what you're proposing? Will it actually fix it? What do we lose by changing? Um, so in that situation, I love college football so much. So I'm slow to change in this scenario. But I'm not opposed to it. Yeah, I think basketball, as the same example, basketball is is too oriented towards the postseason. I mm-hmm. love March Madness. But the regular season is, it's not meaningless, but it's too meaningless. Yeah. The NFL, I think, more or less has it right out of all the pro sports. Like, every game in the NFL does matter. If you lose your first game, you're not out of it. But Not every game. No, but but like what I mean is, like, at the end of the season, you get down to those final four games those games matter. You have a totally. chance to make the playoffs. They matter. And it's not like you can just be in basketball where you can drop a whole bunch of games and still kind of sneak in as like seed 10 or 11. Like you'll be out in the NFL. But it's not. A, it's no perfect, perfect way to do it. But I think in the playoffs, there's enough chapters to the story, which is where I'm getting. There's enough chapters to the story. By the time you win the Super Bowl, you have had to beat some good teams. You've had to endure some difficulty and some hardship. So I like your desire to keep the regular season important. I want that too. I think that's important. But I also think there's a little bit of wiggle room to devalue it enough to where you upvalue the playoffs and you get maybe the better result, which is how you're playing at the end of the year. And that's what gets me the most. The coach in me says, my team on week one should never be as good as my team is on week 10 or 12 or 13. I would hate that my team on week one or two excluded me from getting to really compete on week 12. So, that's what they're discussing. So let's talk then about some actual systems. Now, I've always been a get me to around eight. We talked about the hardball plan, which I really loved, which was like 10. I love this. It was really interesting. It allowed for the group of five teams to come in. It allowed for the conference champions to come in. And now you're kind of talking about this new one gaining some steam, which is a 12-team system. Well, 12 is interesting because it's funny at eight and maybe even sometimes 10. You were talking about the same teams. Georgia makes more playoffs. Ohio State makes more playoffs. You get you generate even more of this. Oklahoma makes more playoffs, right? Um, now you do get some new people. I I think if you want to solve the newness problem, you do go to like twelve, and then all you get a ton of wild cards. Not just the group of five, which you would get at eight probably, but you get kind of some wild teams in there and some goofiness. Now maybe they all just get smashed. Um, but with the 12, you would 
basically give the first four teams a, a buy. So your kind of your playoff teams now would get a buy. And so you get some wackiness. You'd get some stuff going on, some fun stuff. Now it's weird to go. Uh, I want to stay at four. I'm intrigued by twelve. Eight is also fine. I the thing with eight is I don't know that it it does too much um, in terms of what like who's in it. So there's still some of that. I so twelve also like makes me go. I don't know. Now the the thing we what we're talking about now is like let's let's talk about the NBA, which is introducing a play playing game scenario, right? So it makes more teams interested who are pushing to make the playoffs or trying to reduce tanking, some of these types of stuff. I think it's worked. Even though LeBron is like fire the guy who made me make me play in a playing game. No, this is everything you want, right? Because it actually matters whether you're in the top four. It matters like if you're in the five six range, you got to fight like crazy to not drop into seven. So there is some of that. Um, there'd be some. That's the value of like a top four. Or though in the eight system, if you had the first round on campus, that would be a value. You get a home game. So there's some stuff in there that I don't think is the worst. Um, I I'm not gonna like tear my hair out, but I would say the conservative nature of me would say go to eight before you go to twelve. And this is funny because I've always said eight, but the reason I said eight was because I didn't think they would consider anything else. I would be like a, a 12 for life kind of person because of the reasons you mentioned. And here's why. If you look at like a Loyola Chicago in basketball and you look at their story of their school exposure, their marketing dollars, their ability to like recruit a team after they started to kind of emerge. If you look at Gonzaga, the reason those teams can become what they can become in basketball is because they have a chance to enter a playoff with the best teams. Period. The reason Boise State is still stuck as Boise State, which all of you probably think of as a nice team that goes undefeated a lot and never gets a reward for it or isn't good enough, is because they never get a chance to enter a playoff. Now, all of a sudden, Boise State's, let's say, 11 or 12 seed every year. They're in the playoff every single year. Now you can recruit better athletes. Now you get a chance to win. That to me is kind of the American story of the underdog getting a chance at the table with a big dog proving who's better. We all love that story. And I agree with you on eight. On eight, you're still going to sneak in maybe one interesting team. And it's better. I think it's better. I think you have to win more games. I think 12 works for all the reasons you mentioned. There's a lot of different ways you can reward teams, whether it's the buy. So you're not going to make them play one extra game. They get the buy, which really makes every single game so valuable in the regular season. It makes the battling for the last spots really interesting towards last weekend. But I think most importantly, it combines some of that March Madness effect of interesting matchups. I'm okay if someone gets hammered in round one, if the leading is something I haven't seen before. I want to see something new. I want to give those guys a shot. So I like the rationale you're giving. I liked Harbaugh's system for the same reasoning. I think eight's a step in the right direction, but I do think 10 to 12 gives us what as sports fans would probably all want the most. And at the end of the day, let's be real, the best team is still going to win in most of these playoff situations. But this does allow for the underdog story, which in my opinion is just the greatest story in all of sports. It's the story that we all want to see happen. Uh, I think it's one that is sorely needed in college football, which is ruled by the same people every single year, which I'm okay with. That's competition. But let's at least watch them play some different people. That would be, I think, fun. All right, cool. Let's do some playoff picks. So this is obviously... Not knowing much, we haven't done all the preseason stuff. L- much could change. I thought it'd be a fun moment here to just to 
Say so who if you had to pick the playoff right now, James, who would you put in? Yeah, and I'm gonna be super boring because I'm just gonna take observed experience and reality. Bama, despite the fact they're turning over half their roster, I don't care. It's Nick Saban. Clemson, same reason. Oklahoma. Oklahoma's poised to be excellent this year. Lincoln Riley has got to get some of the issue off his back of kind of struggling early on with super teams, but he's got one. Ohio State, who again I think is just a juggernaut in recruiting. And right now, the the biggest win behind Ohio State sales, who is gonna challenge them in the Big Ten? Nobody. They question. haven't lost a they haven't lost a Big Ten game since Ryan Day's been there. It's ridiculous. All right, on to your four, which are much more fun. Yeah, I went way out of the box here. I do think there's a little bit of openness this year. I there's a lot of turnover with the big name teams. That's true. Yeah, a lot That's of quarterback true. changes. Mm-hmm. So number one, though, Clemson, I just hard for me to imagine them losing more than one game next year. It's like no way. They, they could do it. It Maybe. Not hard for me to imagine. It just feels like the most likely like outcome. Who, who would challenge them in the Well, ACC? they've lost They've lost games like Syracuse and Pitt over the years. Sure. But they also, they're playing Georgia. That is true. I believe early on. Is that accurate? Is that right? I okay. believe it is. Oh, well, that's a big deal. And See, so I didn't even know that. They... But I don't think it hurts them that much, right? So if you're competitive with Georgia mm-hmm. and then you run the table in the ACC, you're going to be in. Yeah. Or if you beat Georgia, you could probably drop a game in the ACC and still get in. That's true. I mean, I, I think it's highly likely I have them in my my top four as well. Okay, you so got Clemson. M- Who else you got? My next one is Georgia. Uh, I think the main problem in the Kirby Smart era has been quarterback. And if JT Daniels is what he showed at the end of last year. Which I think he totally is. Could be. I think he uh, is. They're going to be really tough. Yeah, I think it's very possible that Bama and Georgia both get in if things work well for them. Um, Big possibility. And Georgia, yeah, Georgia's my fifth team right now. For They're right there. So, yeah, Georgia should be should be excellent. Uh, my next one is Oregon. A lot of preseason hype behind Oregon. Just that, and, and they have a quarterback change, and there's some stuff there, um, but it feels like the Pac-12 is there for the taking, and there's actually enough like Pac-12, like kind of some interesting teams that the champion will get a little bit. They have to go undefeated, but if they do, I think they get in. I love this last one because Man. this is this is Oklahoma and this team are going to have a sensational battle next season. So I the pitcher of Kool-Aid next to me is empty. I have consumed it all. I'm all in the clones, Iowa State. And I think here's they had everybody come back. They returned literally everyone. And which is unbelievable. Because of COVID, everyone got a free year. A lot of these guys who would have been like edge of roster NFL guys came back. And they almost beat Oklahoma as it was. Yes. And they had a wonky start to the year last year. They actually lost to Louisiana, but they were an incredibly compelling team. And the problem is that Oklahoma, I think, is going to be great. Offensively, we know they're going to be great. Defensively, Alex Grinch, I think, has got them on the right track. They're D.C. So this comes down to really, I mean, this is a little bit of a hard pick. You could have Oklahoma and Iowa State both in the playoff, potentially, if things go wonky. I think, for me, Bama, Ohio State, having new quarterbacks potentially leaves a little room. It does. It does. Um, And if Georgia is who I think they might be, then that might knock Bama out. Um, But... Yeah, you know, I your list is much more boring, conservative. It's boring. Reasonable is another word for that. <laughs> um but that this is a fun foursome there, even though you got Clemson who, you know, yeah. They're I mean they're they're losing Trevor Lawrence, but 
Uh, I don't know yeah, how to say his name. DJ. Exactly. Exactly. There's uh, not going to be a ginormous step down there. Yeah, they're going to be super talented again. They've been recruiting even better than they have been in the past. So uh, I, it's going to be a really fun season. I, there's some really fun early games too. So, man, I'm already juiced for college football, even though it, it just felt like it ended yeah, a little Yeah, especially if, if COVID keeps going hopefully the right way or if it's not going the right way now, it goes the right way in the future, whatever the case may be, and we actually get some some stadiums full of people safely, that will add to the pageantry. All right, let's 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 end the discussion today just, just briefly talking <laughs> about basketball. Wild. So I can say this more calmly now that this is in the rearview mirror. Actually, I've really been calm for a while. Most of you know, if you listen to the podcast for a while, that I would have um, I would have removed Mike White earlier. I think he's a very nice person by all accounts in the community. He's a great guy. No one has a single ill word to say about him. As a coach of Florida's basketball team, here are the results, Alan. His Tell first me. his first year, which was fine. He inherited kind of a Billy was halfway out the door team. Went to the NIT. We were 21 and 15, you know, respectable, fine. No big deal. Second season, uh, Florida goes 27 and nine. We go 14 and four in the sec. We finished second in the sec and we reached the elite eight before losing to South Carolina. That's by far his best year. Epic year. Those were still really mainly Billy Donovan's players. Sure. Now let's look at the rest. So year after that, we go 21 and 13, 11 and seven in the sec. Third, we lose in the second round of the tournament. 2018, 2019, we go 20 and 16, 9 and 9. We're eighth in the SEC. We lose in the second round of the tournament. Uh, obviously, last year, the COVID year, we went 19 and 12. We were going to sneak into the tournament again, got canceled. And then this most recent season, 15 and 10, different year, obviously, no, none of the same cupcakes. Probably was going to be the same record you saw before. 9 and 7 in the conference, fifth out in the second round. So those are the results. To me, those results based with on-court style of play, coaching, etc., I would have I would have separated ways. Now, after this most recent end of the season where, you know, almost all the roster leaves, to be fair to Mike White, that was true of a lot of schools. Florida was not the only one that lost half their roster. They lost a lot. Um I've already, this is nothing new for me. I would have moved on from Mike White. I would have moved on from Mike White this year. I'd moved on from two years ago. I would have been done with Mike White. I think he's had plenty of time to prove what's happening. Now, we've had two assistant coaches go elsewhere. One big knock for me is I felt like our assistant coaches were not really that great. They took jobs at smaller schools. You know, they're head coaches now, but nothing that was like a huge level up, which tells you a lot about what's going on there. We still have not hired two other ones. I can only cross my fingers and hope what I think could really help Mike White because he does recruit guys well is to get some actual really solid X's and O's basketball coaches on his staff. So hopefully that happens. That would be the glimmer of hope for me, Alan. But all in all, we have a mass exodus of players. We bring in a bunch of other players, which I think one could argue are potentially better players than what we lost. I think that's a valid argument. At the end of the day, though, I don't see a path forward where Mike White turns the corner and becomes what I think is a top 10 or 15 basketball coach, which I think Florida should have based upon history, program pedigree. So therefore, I'm off the Mike White train. We all know that. What's more interesting to the listeners is where are you right now with Mike White? This is fascinating. I mean, we talked to so the the COVID year, so we don't fully know, but we thought that's going to be the year 
or excuse me, was it the year before? Yeah, no, preseason Final Four expectations. Yes. Total epic collapse, you know, just limp to the finish line. Right. And then the, the, tournament the tournament gets canceled, right. which, you know. So probably another 20-win team there if yep. you pick up a SEC tournament win. But yeah, a colossal right. underachievement based upon the expectations. Right. And this past year, well, here's the problem. Let's say you take out that year and you move this one up like a COVID year where you lose your best player. I think you have to go, I don't know, right? I think last year was really telling for you. It was really telling for me. This year, it's hard to like put a lot of like weight on it. It wasn't, I don't think it moved the needle forward or backward for me. The mass exodus was incredibly concerning to me. The one, and I don't know, I have no inside information. The one that just feels like a huge outlier was Noah Locke, a guy who had played for you for three years. Seeming like bedrock program kind of guy. And maybe Noah Locke is a total jerk and Michael, I told him to leave. I don't don't know. Now, then he went out and kind of improved the roster potentially. And again, we, I haven't watched a single one of these guys play, so I have no idea, but at least as what people say, I don't know. It, I think the path forward is unlikely. I thought there was no way he was going to get fired, but then if half the guys on your roster transfer, it's like, then do you fire him? But then he went and filled it all up immediately. I was like, Okay, well, he's not getting fired now because he wasn't getting fired post-COVID year where one of his best player almost dies, right? I think this is going to be a huge moment for Mike White this year. Who does he hire? And what happens with this team? If the team levels up, all of a sudden you go, okay, maybe that path forward window, just the slice of that pie increased significantly. Now, again, if you want me to like place a bet, does Mike White make a Final Four or get fired? I'm going to bet on the get fired category. Um, but, yeah, it's not – the arrow is not pointing up for me by any means. Yeah, and this is, this is tough. You know, like obviously Alan nor I are basketball coaches. We're not basketball experts. I also don't think it takes an expert at times to recognize teams that are unorganized, that don't play with a character style, that don't run coherent plays, that don't seem to to be consistent. So those two things are true. I think Scott Strickland is entering into a very critical phase of his athletic director tenure. And obviously he's a friend of the program, personal friend. Our job on this show is to be objective and analytical, which we will always do. Uh, but I think he's entering into a very important season. And and right now, you know, Florida fans have been behind him. He's done a great job fundraising. He's been he's been a great ambassador for the university. He's spending some of his chips right now. He spent a decent amount with the Mike White retaining him and saying he hopes he's here for a long time and all of these things. Depending on what Dan Mullen does this year, we already have chronicled it last year. You know, he eviscerated a ton of social capital last year. So this is an interesting watershed moment for Scott. Um, Depending I, on how those guys do. Correct. Correct. I would have preferred that we would have moved on from Mike White. There's great questions. Who do you hire? What does it look like? Well, look at what Oklahoma did. I would have loved to have had that, you know, as our coach. And now, does he fit in the state of Florida? I don't know. 
But I just think in general, hanging on to a guy who I think, like you said, his arrow is definitely not pointing up. It's almost impossible to make that categorization. Then I think you have to ask yourself, well, then what am I doing? And what's my job hiring coaches at the University of Florida? Am I hiring caretakers? Am I hiring guys who are going to be 25th every year? Like, what is my job? Like, this is hard. Part of your job as an AD is to hire winners at a school like Florida. And that is hard. I understand that. Sometimes you got to fire your friends. But I think to me, Mike White's proven he's not that guy. His arrow's not going up. So then what are we doing? Um, so we're treading water. I let think. me ask you this. I don't know if we said this on the podcast. I know we've had this conversation somewhat in real life. But they, at the end of the season, with those things I documented, you would have still axed him. Yes, but I think it's not because, not but. I, I definitively think it's based upon what I've been watching during the games. There's so many things we could talk about on court that have occurred. Mismanagement of the roster, lack of development. Yeah, I'm not debating. I'm just saying we actual, like, we're in a pandemic, revenue loss, yeah. our best player almost died. I'm still sure. hitting the button and firing the coach. What's my job? My job is to do what's best for the future of the program. Yes. And I, I don't think that like, hey, coach, like, you know what? You had some tough stuff to deal with this year, and I'm sorry. I'm going to keep you solely because of that. No. Hey, coach, you know what? You had some tough stuff to deal with this year, but like ultimately you've had five years. This is the sixth. You've had a long body of work here. I, Your arrow is not pointing up, and I hate that, but I have to let you go, and I have to try to hire someone whose arrow could be pointing up. So I don't, I don't like the optics of the PR battle. Like, but it's real. So if you if you do blind resume, a guy and you just do part of it and you say, right, a guy who's made the NCAA tournament every year mm-hmm. except for the first, yep, won a game every year, yep, has finished with twenty wins every year essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you're not just undertaking. The men's basketball program. Again, I think you have to do what's best. You have to do what's mm-hmm. best for the university and the mm-hmm. athletic department and everything. I think there's a lot to like in play on that decision. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's not. It's not cut and dry and black and white. Sure. So that's what I wanted to get at is sure. like, even if you thought that. Yeah. There's a then there's a level of like, does this deserve another look, another chance? Sure. I think this year. I don't know. It's hard, right? There's a lot of things going on. This next year, I think, has to be a definitive improvement, at least trajectory-wise, right? Um, there's some things that go beyond record, like we talk about style, a growth of players, development, things like that. Um, so this is hard. I, I think there's it's very easy to make a case for Mike White to be fired. There's also a very compelling case to keep him. Um, when you look at it from certain directions. So uh, that's a tough one for Scott. He's going to have to navigate that. He did spend some chips, but he would also spend a lot of chips in firing him too. So that's why that decision is, in my mind, really complicated. Maybe, one. but it feels like most of the fans were behind Well, him. there's the fans and then firing there's... Firing Mike White. Yeah, there's also like national profile boosters. What There's a lot of things that like in that calculus that... I don't know that I'm doing all the time. This this for me was really murky. Yeah, I mean, maybe. I, I just think most of the narrative saw what was reality and said, yeah, that's fine. Those things happen, but at the same point in time, um, you know, you have your job for a certain reason. But I, I think to go back to what you said, 
of course, on this podcast, me especially, I tend to speak my opinions in a, in a black and white fashion because I imagine myself running it. And when I come to a conclusion, that's the conclusion I come to. But I like how you're going back. That doesn't mean that everyone else should come to that conclusion or that mine is right. But I think to be a decision maker, and this is sort of the, the advanced decision making kind of rubric here, right? Mm-hmm. In life, if you find yourself in the decision making seat, you do have to make a committed decision. And that's your job to do. And of course, that's not Alan's job. It's not my job. It's Scott's job. He has to look at what he wants. We're free to look at it in our own way and say, we want to do this. And so for me, I think I've seen enough to say, arrow's not pointing up. My job is to always get someone whose arrow could be pointing up. And sometimes that means I could get rid of someone too soon. The other side of the coin is, hey, look, a lot of basketball coaches, unlike football coaches, notice I haven't named a three-year test in basketball. I have not done the research, but a lot of basketball coaches, their path to success is a little more bizarre. It's not as clean cut as football. Football is this really clean sort of three-year trajectory. It's not that way in basketball per se. So you could say he'll figure it out. He'll get it right. Again, for me, the brightest spot that could happen is we shed two coaches. If he can pick up a really accomplished coach that I think is an X's and O's guy, that I think could transform potentially what's happening in Florida, which I see as a on-court coaching problem, development problem, understanding of the game problem. We will see. But all those things to be said, good discussion on Mike White. I still think no matter what, what we're both saying is Scott's had a nice, relatively clean time as AD at Florida. This season is going to begin to challenge him in different ways as AD. The voices are going to grow louder if Mike White struggles, if Dan Mullen does crazy stuff, the football team goes sideways, to where tough, tough decisions are going to have to be made. Uh, And that is going to be interesting for him. And for any athletic director, it can change so fast from, hey, we love you, we support you, to what's wrong with you? Why aren't you firing someone? And so what am I saying? It's like the Grantham thing, right? The Grantham, not firing Grantham has projected itself onto Dan Mullen. Dan Mullen did wonderfully well with the offense. But him keeping a guy, eventually it's not Grantham's fault anymore that you kept him. Grantham is not keeping himself employed. Dan Mullen is. And Scott Strickland is the one that's going to keep Dan Mullen and any other coach at Florida employed. And all this to say, look, these decisions are really hard. These are real people with real families that are trying their hardest. They're trying their best to succeed. At the end of the day, in a competitive environment, sometimes trying your best just means you're not good enough. And that's part of life. And that is something everyone has to face in their career, in their future, whatever the case may be. All of our jobs, to put a bow on this, is to try to reach your ceiling at whatever endeavor you're at. Get as high as you can get. Become as good as you can become. And then be at peace with the fact that, you know what, maybe I'm not as good as so-and-so was. But I did my best. I reached my ceiling. And sometimes your ceiling is when you get fired and you recognize that, hey, you know what, I'm not a top 15 coach. I'm a top 35 coach. Well, that's great. There's a place for that guy. So anyway, that's a long-winded kind of cushion to say, you know, here we are. So lots of interesting stuff on the docket. We wanted to give you guys like a super full kind of spring podcast, which I think, Alan, we have totally achieved that sort of a mega-sode of sorts here. Do you have any other items as we uh, exit this episode. No, uh, just glad to be back. Appreciative of everyone who's going to show up and listen to this one. Hopefully you enjoyed it. Yeah, absolutely. Great to be back with all of you. Uh, Looking forward to the next time we step in the studio and drop a podcast for you. As always, you can reach us on any of the social media outlets we are on. Message us. We respond back to everything. We love to hear from you. We look forward to being with you again.